Episode 3.2 of History of the Atlantic World, Part 2 of Conquest of the Americas. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Now, before we get into anything, I want to say that I am proud and delighted to announce that I've partnered up with a company called Big Heads Media, and I've joined their podcast network. Big Heads Media has an awesome network of podcasts, and it's really awesome to be part of their lineup. They've got a lot of shows on just about every topic you can think of, and there's a really good chance they've got um, a few shows that you would enjoy. Now, I'm a huge sports fan, so myself, I've been listening to a couple of their sports shows, the Franchise Tag NFL Podcast and the Dogcast both of which keep me up to date on my beloved New York football giants and my even more beloved Georgia Bulldogs, respectively. Now, of course, Big Heads Media is more than just sports. They're sort of like a Netflix of podcasts, because what they do is sift through the great sandbox that is the internet to find the best podcasts and collect them for people who enjoy listening to podcasts like you and me. Now, needless to say, Big Heads Media has an awesome lineup of history shows. Now, I mean, really, it is an honor to be amongst them. Now, one in particular I've been enjoying is Dear World, Love History, and being the lover of maritime history that I am, I've particularly enjoyed their episodes about the Titanic. Anyway, here's a quick promo for that show. Hey, we're Renee and Adrian, and we are the Outlandish Historians. We're sisters, nerds, and lovers of all things history. Except bell bottoms. Keep that in the past. Come hang out with us on the Dear World of History podcast, where we'll frolic through time as we chat and geek out over the good, the bad, and the downright ugly history of the world. We promise you don't have to be a licensed historian to travel through time with us. Maritime disasters? Check. Historical serial killers? Check. Glamorous and petty royals? Check and check. You can find us almost anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. So chug that drink me bottle and come on down the rabbit hole. It's going to be a wild ride. All right. Well, additionally, support for History of the Atlantic World podcast comes from Manscaped the absolute best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Now, Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And let me tell you, I got their trimmer called the Lawn Mower 2.0, and it's absolutely fantastic. And uh, since the holiday is coming up, this is really kind of the perfect time for me to tell you that, uh, you know, 
we do, after all, live in the 21st century. I know this is a history show, but, you know, untrimmed pubes uh, really should be a thing of the past. So if you're looking to get yourself a great gift or for something, uh, a great gift for somebody uh, special in your life, then what you really need is the Lawnmower 2.0, which you can get in Manscaped's Perfect Package 2.0. Okay. I don't want to get too personal here, but uh, I've nicked my ball sack while shaving before with a razor. Uh, it was absolutely horrifying, and if you haven't done that, you do not want to make my mistake. Now, besides, uh, you also don't want to use the same razor for your face and your balls. Uh, that's just gross. So that's why, really, the revolutionary company Manscaped ha- redesigned the electric trimmer in the first place. Uh, like I said, it's called the Lawnmower 2.0, and it is specially designed to safely cut hair without nicking or snagging your nuts. It's also waterproof, you can use it in the shower, and the best way to get the Lawnmower 2.0 is to get it inside the Manscaped Perfect Package, because then it comes with a bunch of uh, really awesome extra goodies. Uh, a couple of products like the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver, um, those are a couple of neat extras that keep you feeling, you know, nice and fresh, you know. Uh, We all know that our balls stink, Uh, and this is the perfect solution for when you've got a big date. You want to dance. Afterwards, you don't want to smell bad, so the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver kind of help deodorize and moisturize your balls, keeping them from sweating, smelling, and stinking. Uh, Not to mention they smell good, uh, the products, that is. So they really are the perfect thing to help you set the mood. Uh, But wait, there's more. If you get the perfect package, you also get a pair of Manscaped boxers. And these are quality anti-chafing briefs that keep you feeling fresh. Um, Now, as I said, you can get all of this in the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. It's really the perfect gift for yourself, your special guy, your brother, and your friends. And here's the best part. You know, I got the hookup. If you go to manscaped.com, You can get 20% off and free shipping. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS, all one word. So once again, that's 20% off your purchase at manscaped.com and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS, one word. All right. I really appreciate you listening to that, folks, and for supporting the people who support this show. Now, if I can get one more minute of your time, I uh, also need your help to produce quality episodes of the podcast faster. And there's basically two ways for you to pitch in. First, take a moment to share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And especially if you're listening to iTunes, because each written review this podcast gets triggers algorithms that govern which shows get promoted to potential listeners. And a lot of podcast uh, ways, I guess, uh, uh, apps you can listen to podcasts on actually use the iTunes uh, list anyway. But uh, anyway, the more listeners who do this um, help to get make sure that a, as many people get to go along this journey through time with us. And if you find yourself enjoying this uh, long-form kind of left-leaning history show starring me, your allegedly hilarious host, then please take a moment to uh, you know share, subscribe, rate, and review. Now, the second way you can help is by going to patreon.com slash atlanticworld and becoming a patron of the show. Uh, You can do that for as little as a dollar per month. And for the amount of content each episode is, that amounts to a tiny amount of money for some 
excellent history. Now, in addition, I'm weighing a few options as to how to best provide some extras to my patrons, and I don't want to give anything away just yet, but if you check out patreon.com slash atlanticworld for updates, um, you know, I might have a big announcement regarding that very soon, um, maybe even on next episode. Anyway, uh, with all of that out of the way, let's focus on this episode, which details the conquests of the Spanish conquistadors in the early 16th century and the Taino people they encountered in the Caribbean. Now, what follows is a story of theft, murder, slavery, and rape. Now, Columbus, of course, did not truly discover the Americas. They were well populated. You can check out my episode Beyond Clovis to know the true discoverers of the Americas. Columbus was the first European conquistador in the Americas. And subsequently, the Spanish installed a new colonial regime in the Caribbean based at Santo Domingo Hispaniola, the island that is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Now, from Hispaniola, the bloody regime the Spanish created expanded outwards as conquistadors who wished for greater wealth went searching for it. Like the tentacles of an octopus, grasping and exploring for subsistence, and to learn the environment around it, so too did the Spaniards expand, and with them, spreading a genocidal colonial regime from island to island and to parts of the mainland of the Americas. Now, since this podcast deals in dark themes like slavery and conquest, you know, this isn't going to be an unusual episode. Uh, And uh, for that reason, uh, but though... This one is going to be particularly dark. And in fact, I was going to title this episode Genocide of the Tainos. But as you see, as as dark as this episode is going to get, and it is, I mean, filled to the brim with theft, murder, slavery, and rape, that's only part of the story. Now, song was very important to the Taino, and this is their story too. Now, I'll be honest, I decided to tell their story, uh, change the name of the episode, that is, after I ate a shitload of edible marijuana-infused gummy bears, and then I fell asleep. Now, when I awoke in the morning, I realized that we have a lot to learn from the Taino. I began to write, and the episode was different. But more important than that, I'm telling the story of the Taino because the history of the Atlantic world is the history of our modern world. And while the genocide of the Taina was an historical event which destroyed a culture, I mean, a society collapsed, and as I will document, Spanish colonial policies and conquistadors killed hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Tainos. But the, the history of the Spanish conquest of the Caribbean was not a complete eradication of everyone who lived there. Today, people in Jamaica, the Dominican Republic, Cuba and Puerto Rico, all have Taino ancestry in their genetics. Statistically, Puerto Ricans have the greatest percentage of Taino ancestry of of anyone, and thus, quite literally, the Taino are as American as I am, and very much alive. One might even argue that since the union of Spanish conquistadors and Taino women produced the very first Latin Americans— 
that the people with Taino descent in their DNA are the most American of all the Americans. So while genocide is a big part of the history of the Taino, genocide is not all-encompassing of the Taino's history. And I, I'm, I'm not telling you this because I, I want to seek in any way to give you some sort of story, you know, some sort of silver lining on this story, because I do not want to do that. What I'm going to tell you about is as sick as anything you might read about the Nazis, or the Soviets, or the Khmer Rouge, or any other murderous regime through history. Instead, I'm telling you this because I want to consider, as I have considered, that despite all that has been done to the indigenous people of the Americas, that their descendants are still here, and in fact they may very well be your neighbors. The reason I nearly titled this episode Genocide of the Taino lies in the nature of European empire at the start of the 16th century, and especially uh, for Spain and Portugal. There have been many powerful empires through history. I might compare the Romans to a great and powerful tiger, able to snap its jaws around any competitor or prey, then consume it. I might compare the Mongols to a pack of cunning and fearsome wolves, able to outwit and ensnarl any opponent into a deadly trap. But if I were to similarly anthropomorphize the Spanish Empire, it would be better to compare their ability to exercise power to that of an octopus. Spanish and Portuguese caravels filled with conquistadors were frightening, but they didn't exactly pose as dangerous a threat as that posed by an entire army. But there were plenty of caravels filled with conquistadors, and they could travel a long distance away from Spain. And while often those Spanish caravels ended up accomplishing nothing more than a bit of exploration, maybe mapping some coastlines and engaging in light trade and raiding, sometimes those Spanish tentacles managed to secure themselves in foreign lands. And from those beginnings began to wrap around and squeeze distant parts of the globe. And once that happened, Spain was able to siphon off whatever it wanted from such a place. Now, part of this episode deals with the expansion of the Spanish octopus from Hispaniola, where Spanish conquistadors meander about enslaving people and looking for gold and sometimes pearls in the Caribbean and along the American coastline. They slowly discover the enormity of what they have stumbled upon. Now, basically, I'm going to stop there because our next episode is going to focus on uh, conquistadors like Vasco Nunez del Balboa, the first European to gaze upon the South Sea or what you would probably call the Pacific Ocean. But anyway, relatedly, we're going to talk about the nature of the Spanish colonial system that developed in the wake of these successful conquests. 
The Spanish colonies were focused on obtaining gold and other sources of easily uh, transferable wealth. And they were focused on this to such an extent that, in my opinion, many of the Spaniards, I mean most of the Spaniards, who engaged in the colonial enterprise kind of lost their humanity out in the Caribbean. This is the principal reason why the Spanish colonial system directly led to genocide on a massive scale for the Taino and other people who lived in the, uh, on the Caribbean islands. Now, our guide to examining that genocide is Bartolomé de las Casas, a conquistador who participated himself in the conquest of Cuba before becoming disillusioned with the entire enterprise and spending decades fighting for the rights of Native Americans. Now, before we get into the guts of that discussion, though, we need to talk about the Taino. Because in truth, part of what I'm doing with this whole episode is using the topic of genocide, on all the horrific tales of torture, rape, and murder that go along with it, to introduce you to a culture that I think everyone needs to know better. Now, I know what you're saying. Jesse, why do I really need to know about the Taino? They are just one of the numerous losers of history. Well, in part to answer that question, I would remind you of William Shakespeare's words. Quote, There is more in this world, Horatio, than can be dreamt of by your philosophy, unquote. Now, the Taino were a seafaring people whose gigantic canoes plied the oceans. Now, if you've ever been in a canoe or a kayak, then you are likely familiar with the design of their paddles. Now, at night, while most Europeans slept on the floor like a savage barbarian, even the poorest of Taino slept suspended in the air in a hamoka. And if you have ever relaxed or napped in the sun, Uh, While the sun set in a hammock, you can thank the Taino for inventing them. Caribbean meals were cooked in a way, likewise, that was unique to the inhabitants of that region. A means of cooking which the Taino called barbacoa. If you enjoy barbecue, then by all means, thank the Taino for inventing it. Taino society consisted of large, allied populations of sedentary agriculturalists who grew diverse crops and who left a far smaller ecological footprint on their surroundings than our own sedentary society, based instead on mono-agriculture and mining the earth, two processes which have destroyed ecologically viable uh, parts of the globe and replaced them with burnt-out, fucked-to-death wastelands. Now, the Taino were an inventive people. They were generally healthier, they ate better, and were happier than most people in the 21st century. So I think we have a lot to learn from them. Also, uh, in part to answer the question of why we should learn about the Taino, I would ask you a question. And that is, have you ever seen the movie White Men Can't Jump? Because in that film, Wesley Snipes' character questions whether Woody Harrelson's character understands the difference between the word listen and the word hear. Now, similarly, while I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode, what I'm hoping for is that by the end of it, 
you're going to hear the song of the Taino. But first, let's talk about sources. Now, I used a lot of different texts here because we're covering some diverse territory. Starting uh, with John K. Thornton's A Cultural History of the Atlantic World, 1250 to 1820, which is a fantastic overview of just the subject of Atlantic world history as a whole. Dr. Uh, Eric, excuse me, Dr. Eric Williams' Documents of West Indian History provides us with a host of primary documents, and those provide excellent insight into the operations and goals of Spain's colonial ventures. Carl Ortwin Sowers, The Early Spanish Main, is likewise an excellent book about the early Spanish Caribbean. Excuse me, gosh, I drank too much coffee, you guys, I'm burping. Samuel Elliott Morrison's The European Discovery of America, The Southern Voyages, is also a good guide into the tangled history of early Spanish exploration. Now, I mentioned Bartolomé de las Casas already, and his devastation of the Indies gives us a horrifying first-hand account of the atrocities committed by the conquistadors. In addition, while no complete English translation exists of Las Casas Historia, I've used portions of that uh, as well that I, can, that I can find English translations for. Now, Peter Martyr was another 16th century historian. Uh, he wasn't in the Caribbean, but he interviewed an awful lot of the conquistadors, clergy, and merchants who did voyage there. His De Orb Novo was critical to the construction of this episode. Kathleen Ann Meyer's book, Fernandez de Oviedo's Chronicle of America, uh, gives insight into another chronicler, uh, Oviedo, and who he was. Um, he chronicled the Americas, and he was more of a propagandist as the uh, other two chroniclers we have, and he's not really nearly as trustworthy a source, therefore, as Las Casas or Peter Martyr. He is helpful to our understanding of the Americas nonetheless. Eric R. Wolf's book, Europe, Europe and the People Without History, has an excellent chapter about the early search for wealth in the Americas, showing that the quote-unquote discovery uh, was the first American gold rush. Wolf helps us uh, basically to unpack the economics behind the conquest. Philip D. Curtin's Rise and Fall of the Plantation Complex is without a doubt one of the best sources for information regarding the spread of sugar plantations and the African slave trade into the Caribbean, and which is basically what happened as soon as the gold and the easily obtained Taino labor began to dwindle. And finally, Marshall C. Eakins' The History of Latin America, Collision of Cultures, helps me, uh, helped me to understand the formation of Latin America. And the same can be said of another overview of Latin American history I used in this episode, which is Benjamin Keene's Latin American Civilization, History and Society 1492 to the Present. Okay, with that out of the way, I should probably start talking about the Taino by explaining that we might not even really shouldn't even be using the word Taino to talk about the people I am referring to. Uh, that's because the word Taino is a derivative of Niteno, a word which refers only to a single social class. Niteno were the nobility of the people who lived in the Greater Antilles. Uh, 
which included Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and the Bahamas. This was an Arawakan culture, and the historian Carl Orton Sauer thus referred to them as Island Arawaks, not as Tainos, since they shared a history and had a similar society to other Arawakan cultures in South America. Now, I tell that story in the episode Earthshaker, by the way, if you haven't heard it. Uh, at any rate, uh, the Taino were not alone in the Caribbean. The Lesser Antilles were populated mostly by the Caribs, enemies of the Taino, who may or may not have engaged in cannibalism, and who were fighting a defensive war against the Taino, though the Europeans believed the opposite was true. Uh, and in fact, Europeans were horribly ignorant about the complexity of life in the Caribbean in general in the 1500s. Um, but anyway, besides that, there was a third older society. Uh, the original inhabitants of the Caribbean also lived in both the Greater and Lesser Antilles. We have almost no mention of them in the historical sources, except that they were called the Sibonet and were very elusive hunter-gatherers. Merchants from South America and Mesoamerica traversed their way in canoes onto the islands to trade. So too did merchants from Florida and the American Gulf Coast. And I say this because I want to state that the Caribbean was a diverse place, one that isn't well understood even today, let alone by the conquistadors who simplified things for themselves into good Indians, the Tainos, and bad Indians, the Caribs. Now, archaeological evidence nowadays still only provides us with an idea of what life was like for the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean, but we know enough that it was more complex than initially imagined by Europeans, who only later, after they realized the enormity of the Americas, did they even begin to really start trying to better understand the diversity of the people who lived there. Now, the main reason for all the mystery is that, uh, plainly put, the Spanish exterminated the people of the New World faster than they could learn much about them. Now, they did, in fairness, learn a good deal about the Taino. And afterwards, Spanish conquistadors superimposed this knowledge onto other societies of the Caribbean and into the Americas. Hence, uh, for example, the usage of the word cacique was used later to describe Native American rulers wherever they were encountered by, by the Spanish. Um, anyway... Now, I think there's something very beautiful about Taino culture, but it wasn't perfect. I don't want to give you the idea that these were people living, you know, some sort of perfectly pacifistic life before 1492. Uh, for example, you know, the Taino attempted to invade and colonize at least one island where Carib people lived, and that is what started a broader war between the two societies. Taino society was also very aristocratic. At the very top were the caciques, or five on Hispaniola, each who ruled a substantial part of the island and who collected tribute from a number of subchiefs, each of who ruled a particular village or district and who also held the title of cacique. One king or cacique on Hispaniola, named Bejechio, ruled 300 lesser caciques. Below the caciques were the Nitenos, the, the noble class from which Taino is derived, 
below the Nitenos were the commoners, and in some Taino chiefdoms, beneath the commoners, was another class called the Naborias. Naborias were slaves captured in war, and since not every Taino society went to war, let alone went to war victoriously, not every Taino society contained Naborias. Peter Martyr tells us that, despite their nakedness, the Taino could be very competent warriors, and further wrote, quote, It must be admitted that in some places the natives have exterminated entire groups of Spaniards, unquote. Now, the, their uh, occasional fearsomeness aside, this hierarchical social structure was one of the chief things that the Taino had in common with the Spanish. In both societies, social class was largely determined by birth, especially in the highest ranks. And so the conquistadors often substituted their own terminology for Taino leadership, calling the highest-ranking caciques kings, for example. On the other hand, one thing that made Arawakan culture unique was their highly advanced agricultural complex. Taino agriculture was remarkably the remarkably different than almost anywhere else in the Americas except for you know other Arawakan societies the plants grown in the Caribbean were different than the set of crops grown elsewhere you know largely corn beans and squash the three sisters which were nearly omnipresent in in in, in giant parts of the Americas but they were rare in the Caribbean the Taino instead were the most northernmost example of South American root agriculture. The Taino cleared and prepared their agricultural grounds and then heaped that earth into round, large mounds that were not packed tightly, but were instead built with loose, well-aerated soil where root crops, root crops could grow very well. Uh, different plants were grown in the mounds. Inside were roots. On top were upright plants, and on the sides, creeping vines. Now, this variety ensured the soil remained full of nutrients, and since the mound wasn't just planted but fully covered on top and the sides, it meant that the mounds were well protected against soil erosion. Now, the Taino built clusters of mounds on tracts of lands known as kunokos. The mounds worked well on sloped land as well as flat land, and even today, there are farmers in Haiti and the Dominican Republic and Jamaica who build canocos still to grow bananas, coffee, and cacao. Now, it was from the canocos that the Taino paid much of their tribute to the Spanish when they arrived. Yucca and sweet potatoes especially were demanded as tribute. Uh, Peter Martyr relates that kunokos were created by digging a hole knee-deep in the ground, and the dirt from the hole was then piled in nine-foot square heaps. In each of these, a dozen yucca plants were planted in the center of the mounds. Now, the chief agricultural tool of the Caribbean was the makana, which was also used as a weapon, since it was a wooden broadsword with a cutting edge on one side. But, of course, with that said, makanas found much more usage, generally speaking, as machetes, helpful in cutting away brush to clear land for canocos. On Hispaniola, the Taino built an extensive irrigation systems, uh, quote, with no less art than those built in Spain, unquote, according to one Spanish observer. Irrigation allowed the Taino to practice extensive irrig um, 
agriculture, even in the driest parts of the islands in which they lived. Now, Taino ingenuity can even be seen in the crops they planted. Now, many Taino crops, like yucca and sweet potatoes, were planted from stem cuttings. The Taino literally selected what foods they would eat by selecting what plants they would grow. Now, that means that the Caribbean environment was carefully crafted by the Taino. I mean, they exercised uh, a control over their environment. Um, now, the yucca plant served as the staple of the islands. Two varieties existed, sweet and bitter. Stem cuttings were planted and could be harvested within a year, though it was more common to let them grow for two years while getting repeated partial harvestings. Las Casas stated that the first crop was available in a year, the best crop in a year and a half, and the plants would continue to produce for three years in total and were in production throughout. The yucca is indifferent to acidic and alkaline soils. Some varieties are very tolerant of drought conditions. Once harvested, the roots were grated, drained of their juice, and baked into unleavened flatbread. Yucca bread keeps without deterioration for months, even in humid conditions, and it's much more nutritious than bread made from, say, wheat or corn. But modern commerce, organized for mass harvests, uh, and which was first practiced in the Caribbean by the Spanish in the form of, sh of the sugar plantation, um, isn't really suited for the yucca, which in contrast uh, of one big harvest offers continual mini-harvests. And so it's, it's kind of really been overlooked by the modern world. It's a little hard to find, but, uh, but tasty. Now, the sweet potato was second in importance to the yucca. It produced fewer calories than a yucca plant overall, but it had the advantage of being ready to harvest in only four months' time. The leafy vines also helped cover the canocos, which prevented erosion. Now, the sweet potato also came in two varieties, the age, which was not technically sweet, and the batata, which we are familiar with, which was sweet and highly prized by the Spanish, which is why it's much more common than the, the age. Uh, the Spanish loved making uh, sweet potatoes into, cons into conserves. In addition, other uh, roots like uh, yautia, which is popular in Puerto Rico today, arrowroot, uh, Yeren and Nyampi were also grown in the Canocos, uh, as were peanuts. Corn, beans, and squash were introduced to the Caribbean from Mesoamerica at some point in the past, but they were grown far more rarely in the Caribbean than the crops of the Canocos. Um, the Taino also grew a variety of non-food crops. Cotton was grown in large quantities. Spinning cotton was an important economic activity in the Caribbean. Another important non-food plant was called bixa, from which a reddish body paint was made by the Taino that quite possibly gave, term, uh, gave rise to the term Red Indians. But perhaps the most important non-food plant grown in the Caribbean was tobacco. It was used for ritual purposes during arietos, and in addition, tobacco leaves were used as currency. The Taino uh, didn't grow cotton, bixa, or tobacco in conocos, and the Spanish didn't describe how they were grown, so we really have no idea how Taino farmers grew those crops. Um, and uh, interesting to me, anyway, the Spanish, who were always eager for profit, learned... Uh, 
nothing almost about tobacco for some time. They didn't seem to realize its potential. Uh, they considered it a terrible vice, good for them, I guess. But uh, on the other hand, I'm sure they would have preferred the money. The Taino probably grew their cotton in orchards amongst uh, the pineapples, apples, and endless other tropical fruits, which the Taino also grew in orchards. Uh, amongst the fruit and the cotton trees, they also grew a tree called the cohaba, which produced a narcotic snuff that was mixed with tobacco for fun times at the Arietos. And the Taino um, had a pretty very varied diet, as you can tell from the way they grew uh, crops. Um, and this was supplemented by a lot of fishing and hunting. Their nets and fishing cords were made from palm fibers, fish hooks were made from turtle shells, and harpoons and other fishing gear were generally made of bone. The Taino harvested shellfish, fish, turtles, marine mammals, and waterfowl from the varied waterways of the uh, Caribbean. Obviously, there's offshore fishing going on. That was common. Uh, and in the islands of the Greater Antilles, there are numerous estuaries, streams, and, lake, uh, and lakes. Uh, one particular ingenious fishing method developed by the Taino was the use of the remora, also known as the suckerfish. Taino fishermen tied a line to a remora and then let it into the water. And then it would swim and quickly find a larger fish or a turtle and attach itself to. And then it literally wouldn't let go until the fisherman pulled both remora and whatever it caught up above the water. On Cuba, the Spanish even reported that the Taino kept fish in pens, what 21st century man might call aquaculture. On land, they hunted bats and a large and tasty rodent called a hutia, which reminded the Spaniards of rabbits. They had domesticated animals as well. Guinea pigs and Muscovy ducks were kept for food, and a small breed for dog, the size of a lap dog, was used for hunting and as family pets. It might have been eaten, uh, we don't really know. Uh, it certainly was eaten in the starving time of 1494. Ah, uh, that's when every single last one of the Taino dogs was eaten by uh, Taino and Spaniards alike. Uh, so we actually have no idea what sort of breed this was or, or, and very little information about them. Taino craftsmen worked mainly with perishable materials, wood, fibers, and cane. And uh, uh, Caribbean woodworkers, as a result, were as talented as you know anywhere else on Earth. Their canoes and paddles were often remarked upon by European observers who appreciated the design and elegance of, of the of the of the um, craft. Columbus claimed to have seen canoes that carried 150 persons, and on occasion sheltered boathouses that kept these massive canoes safe. These were used on special occasions by caciques. Smaller craft were more frequently used for fishing, trading, and going to war. An important mark of distinction in Taino society was the use of specially polished and carved wooden seats. Only the cacique and principal persons of a village would own these highly decorated wooden chairs. Their owners plopped down on them to watch the ball games played in the central courts of Taino villages. They were an important status symbol for the Taino and possibly for other nearby cultures. Um, anyway, the chairs were made from a rare black wood that was important in Taino society generally. Uh, the cacique and the kawana kept a warehouse stocked 
with various dishes, basins, and containers made of that same highly polished black wood that was used in the ceremonial chair business. And these finely finished bowls were widely traded in the Caribbean and valued as gifts. The ball game was very important to Taino society. Not only was it a source of entertainment, but also a way to resolve political disputes. Taino politicians were athletes and uh, could literally beat the shit out of our literal, out of our modern politicians. Um, but even more important than the ball game was respecting one's ancestors. Most of the deceased were burned, and then their bones were buried. But for those who deserved great respect, they were preserved as mummies within the homes of their families and dressed with precious stones and a mixture of gold and copper. The Spanish looted the Taino mummies, of course, and they were very disappointed to later discover that Taino mummies were dressed in a gold-copper alloy and not pure gold. Cotton textile production was another important part of Taino society. Regions of Hispaniola and Jamaica in particular manufactured a lot of cotton for export elsewhere. Jamaica was apparently the spot to go to if you wanted to go shopping for a new cotton hammock. On other islands, hammocks were instead made of other fiber-producing plants like maguey. And let me tell you how much more comfortable a hammock made of cotton is than one made of rope. Europeans often commented on the nakedness of the Taino, but married women wore short skirts of woven cotton called naguas, which was one of many Taino words that the Spanish then applied to the entire Americas. Many Taino homes had spun, spun cotton tapestries as well. These could be very ornately decorated with gold and gemstones, and so, of course, they were all stolen by the Spanish. Now, the gold-copper alloy that was made, uh, was made not by the Taino, but by metalsmiths in Central America and modern-day Venezuela and, uh, and Colombia as well. It was the most valuable metal in Taino society. The Taino didn't create metal compounds themselves. Gold was the only important metal that they used. It was uh, used as decoration and for jewelry and art, so it was highly valued, but not in the same way as it was by Europeans. The Spanish were literally heartbroken when they found out that some of their most prized stolen loot was made not of pure gold, but of this compound. Now, but the Taino did also make their own items out of gold. Taino craftsmen made earrings and nose rings and lip rings, masks and belt buckles, and all sorts of golden objects to wear. They put gold inlays and golden nuggets into their tapestries, and they decorated their lives with gold in, in, in a variety of ways. But the Taino did not hoard gold. They did not base their currency upon gold, and they certainly didn't lust after it. Gold did not hold intrinsic value in the Caribbean, nor not much. But golden objects did have value for their artifice. So for the Taino, a ceremonial golden belt buckle that a cacique owned was a very valuable item. A Spanish gold bar, which might weigh four times as much, was practically worthless. 
The Taino hammered gold nuggets into very thin sheets. It was a tedious process, and this was used to create a thin gold foil, and they used that to create jewelry and art. The golden belt buckles used by the Taino were badges of distinction. These were golden images made of pounded golden foil that were attached with pitch to a belt. Taino women similarly distinguished themselves as being important nitenos by wearing gold headdresses or armbands. The Taino were familiar with where they could get gold when they wanted it, and it was plentiful enough for their purposes. But they didn't systematically exploit the land to obtain every ounce of gold they could find. In contrast, the conquistadors were obsessed. They could barely understand why the Taino did not spend their days digging for gold in the heat. Why they did not ruin fishing grounds or farmland to systematically dig up riverbeds and sift through tons of sand to find individual grains of gold. But most perplexing to the Spanish was that the largest gold nuggets in the Caribbean often went completely unused because the Taino found that the largest gold nuggets were just too large to be used for jewelry in the first place. The Taino lived in villages, in circular bell-shaped houses that were kept clean. Most of their homes were wood and thatch, with a ceramic chimney placed in the center of the roof. Their belongings in these homes were likewise often made of wood or ceramic pottery or cotton or bone. But most of village life did not exist within the Taino home, but outside in the town square. This is where the ball game was played, where the arietos were held. And these two events, essentially music, dance, and sport, uh, music and dance and sport, were the most important entertainments in Taino society. Peter Martyr gives us a great description of an arietto, arietto, excuse me, which was a huge party where everyone in town sang, danced, and got completely smashed. But the arietto was far more than just a way to have fun, let loose, and find a good dance partner. The arietto was also the chief means of Taino education. Martyr tells us that the Taino educated the children of caciques in two principal subjects at the Arietos. The first being a general history and mythology of their people. The second being more biographical and focused on the exploits, quote, in time of peace or time of war by their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and all of their ancestors. Each of these exploits is commemorated in poems. These poems are called arietos. As with us, the guitar player, so with them, the drummers accompany these arietos and lead singing choirs. Some of the arietos are love songs. Others are eulogies. Others are war songs. And each is sung to an appropriate air. They also love to dance, and they are more agile than us. First, because nothing pleases them better than dancing, and second, because they are naked and untrammeled by clothing, Now, I find a lot to admire in studying the Taino, but what really impresses me about Taino society was the size of their population. The earliest European observers who saw the Caribbean 
as it was in its original condition, were all very impressed by the population of the Taino, especially on Hispaniola. And likewise, they noted that the Taino population was least on Cuba, which goes along with the archaeological evidence, incidentally. However, until very recently, modern historians and scholars of the you know past hundred years or so and beyond uh, have asserted that the Caribbean was far more sparsely populated. And if you're of that opinion coming into this episode, you might find what follows very shocking. Now, during the 20th century, scholars of the Caribbean settled on a number of about 100,000 inhabitants on Hispaniola before the invasion of 1492. And a similar number was postulated to have existed on the other islands of the Caribbean controlled by Taino caciques. Now, the early Spanish sources put the number at over a million. Now, the discrepancy between the early estimates given by the Spanish and the more modern estimates are just irreconcilable. In part, believe it or not, few scholars working in the Caribbean were familiar with Spanish sources until relatively recently. Now, this might seem incredible, living as we are now in an age of information. But the vast majority of archaeologists who studied the Caribbean until, say, about 50 years ago had very little knowledge, if any, about the Spanish accounts. Some didn't read them and had no idea what the conquistadors had to say on the matter. Others read them and dismissed them as boastful overestimations by Spanish knights seeking greater glory. But the Spanish conquistadors give us firsthand eyewitness accounts. And so that's just kind of insane. Now, I don't want to get too distracted here, so I'm going to be very brief in saying this, but historians and archaeologists have, until very recently, been working completely separately from each other, much to our detriment if we want to best understand the past. Angel Rosenblatt was the most well-known archaeologist of the 20th century who operated in the Caribbean and read Spanish colonial documents. Before even beginning to dig, though, Rosenblatt was convinced that the Caribbean held a small pre-Columbian population, and so he concluded that they really had no merit, they weren't barely even worth studying. Rosenblatt believed the Spanish had just magnified their own deeds and by exaggerating the number of natives they encountered. In contrast to Rosenblatt, the earliest Spanish reports state that at the beginning of the conquest of Hispaniola, the island contained no fewer than 1,130,000 inhabitants. That was the number cited in a report by a certain Cardinal Cisneros back to King Charles at the beginning of 1518. Our good friend Oviedo gives us a more rounded number. He says more than a million lived on Hispaniola. Oviedo and others worked from information given to them by Columbus, who, quote, repartió la tierra y más de un millón de indios, unquote. I apologize for my probably terrible pronunciation, but in English, he repartitioned the land of more than a million Indians. This earliest repartimiento escaped historical attention for a very long time, 
and thus it escaped the later attention of demographers. But now we have access to these documents, and the reports are hard to ignore. Another Spanish account was written on December fourteenth, uh, excuse me, December fourth, fifteen nineteen, by a group of Dominican friars, who sent a long account of Hispaniola to King Charles. The friars noted, quote, "With regard to the early days, the number of persons amounted to one million one hundred thousand, and these were counted by the Adelantado himself." Unquote. The Adelantado was Bartolomeo Columbus. The Dominican letter also referred to other contemporary estimates in the early 16th century. Men in Spain estimated that anywhere from 600,000 to 2 million indios lived on Hispaniola in 1492. And it was fairly common knowledge around the beginning of the 16th century that Hispaniola was roughly as populous as Seville. Now, you might be asking me, Jesse, why would you be so certain that the figure of 1,300,000 is correct? Why not 600,000? Why not 2 million? Well, in the words of Carl Ortwin Sauer, the, quote, oft-repeated figure 1,300,000 was not taken out of thin air, unquote. In 1495, Columbus decreed that all Indians on Hispaniola should pay a tribute in gold to be collected through their caciques and then left uh, for Spain, leaving the island, and, and then, excuse me, Columbus left for Spain, excuse me, leaving the island in his brother's charge. In the autumn of 1496, Bartolomeo began mining operations and started building the town of Santo Domingo. In the next year, 1497, the Taino revolted. The system native tribute had broken down. And as such, Carl Ortwin Sauer makes a pretty persuasive argument that Bartolomeo therefore conducted his survey of the Indian population of Hispaniola in the spring or summer of 1496 before he uh, really finished the construction of Santo Domingo. Columbus's specific orders to his brother were that each Taino, male or female, aged 14 to 70, was to pay a fixed quantity of gold. And it was to that specific purpose that the Adelantado conducted the census, three and a half years after the events of 1492. It was up to individual caciques to collect the gold, as well as to provide the census numbers. Now, the caciques it is probably doubtful that they would have overestimated the population because that literally would have meant more work for their people, not to mention put their lives in jeopardy if they failed to produce the, the overestimated total of gold that they would have required to get. Now, additionally, um, Columbus ordered his brother to conduct a census that specifically ignored children because it only counted the available laborers who were at least 14 years old. And this wasn't the only undercalculation in the Adelantado survey, because by 1494, many of the natives had abandoned their farms and fled into the wilds of the mountains of Hispaniola, to the extent that this became known as the Starving Time by the Spaniards. And when the Taino stopped farming to attempt to uh, basically to starve the Spaniards out, 
It was recorded as time of high mortality for the Taino. Uh, according to the Spanish, around 50,000 died of starvation in 1494. The next year, 1495, was known as the pacification of the Taino. That was the year during which Christopher Columbus spent burning and pillaging and killing and enslaving as many Taino as he could. Now, I tell you all of this again, even though we talked about it last episode, because I want to point out that Bartolomeo Columbus's survey of the Taino population of Hispaniola was by no means all-encompassing of the Taino population in 1492. I mean, it didn't include children, and in addition, it didn't really include a Taino population, quote, unquote, at full strength. Finally, Bartolomeo's tribute list only, may have only covered parts of the island. Um, you know, only half of the island, perhaps, was under control of the Spanish in 1496. Before the conquest, of, before the conquest, the Taino on Hispaniola lived in, like I said, five uh, under five different caciques and five separate, uh, for lack of a better term, kingdoms. And Bartolomeo's census really didn't include the population, probably, uh, for all five of these separate political units. Uh, a, a couple of them were were completely free. So the information we have about the other nearby islands to Hispaniola um, also seems to confirm a very large population in 1492. While he was governor of Hispaniola, Columbus gifted his friend, Michel de Cuneo, an island which he called Bella Soana. Cuneo reported that his new possession, quote, has about 37 villages with at least 30,000 souls, unquote, which is a very reasonable estimate for that number of villages. Now, during the governorship of Nicolas de Ovando, the island of Bella Savana was depopulated and quickly uninhabited and overgrown with woods and brush. But uh, anyway, Ovando ruled Hispaniola from 1502 until 1509, at which point the indigenous population was in an advanced state of decline. Now, by the end of Ovando's rule, there were 15 Spanish towns on Hispaniola, and these were placed in areas where the Taino population was highest. Because the Spanish uh, uh, colonists who, who ob obtained um, homes in the Villas after the repartimiento and got, and got encomiendas uh, also obtained a distribution of the Indians who lived in the region. Um, so the 15 Spanish towns were always built near the large Taino population centers, and so uh, that gives us a pretty good idea about the distribution of the Taino population on Hispaniola, but far less is known about the actual number or location of most Taino villages. Uh, they were built with wood, cane, and thatch, and they quickly decayed in the humidity of the Caribbean once their owners died. So all in all, it's difficult to say exactly how many Indians lived on Hispaniola in 1492, but if Bartolomeo's estimate was anything close to correct, that in 1496, after the so-called starving time, and not including children under the age of 14 or elderly Tainos over the age of 70, and not including the parts of the island not under the control of the Spanish, that if you don't include all of that, that 1.3 million Tainos lived on Hispaniola. Well, I mean, if all of that is true, then that means another early estimate probably isn't too far off, and that would be the estimate provided by Bartolomé de las Casas. 
Las Casas believed that Hispaniola, the island in the Caribbean now comprised of the nations of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, had a native population of roughly 3 million people in the year 1492. Las Casas stated that Jamaica and Puerto Rico had a similar population density, but Cuba did only in parts. Now, mind you, the state to state the size difference between them, Jamaica has a square mileage of 4,244 square miles, Puerto Rico is at 3,515 miles, square miles. Hispaniola has 29,418 square miles of land. So a similar population density on Jamaica and Puerto Rico didn't mean that each, either of them contained anywhere close to 3 million Tainos. But um, to, to provide further evidence that, that uh, Las Casas might not be that far off, the idea that Cuba had less of a Taino presence is backed up by archaeological evidence. The Taino themselves only recently arrived in the Caribbean around, well, recently, around eight or six hundred years before the Spanish did, uh, and they were still in the process of colonizing Cuba themselves when Columbus arrived and the whole world changed. Now, what follows is the story of the genocide of the Taino. But although the Taino were nearly wiped from the earth, we would do well to remember what they created. Uh, now, as I have said, they were a seafaring and an agricultural people. They were the inventors of the hammock and barbecue. Carl Orton Sauer says of the Taino's impressive agricultural complex, quote, the white man never fully appreciated the excellent combination of plants that were grown in Kunokos. The mixed planting system gave the greatest range of terrain usable without regard to steepness or regularity of slope. The plants, plants grown were neither demanding nor exhaustive of soil fertility and were relatively indifferent to soil acidity. They needed no special means of storage, had no critical time of harvest, and were in production in all seasons, unquote. In the Caribbean, the biggest threat to crops were hurricanes, and the root crops grown by the Taino, like yucca and sweet potatoes, were rarely damaged by hurricanes, especially since they were planted in raised land in the Kanoko fields, too high to be flooded and too well encased by other plants to have the mound erode away. On the other hand, root crops are sensitive to drought, but in the Caribbean, droughts are very rare. It's important to grow crops this way, as the Taino did, in combinations with each other. If you live where storms or flooding happens, you might even benefit from building a, a raised Kanoko mound in your backyard, planting your garden there. The Taino used Kanokos to build a vast civilization. And actually, here, I think it might be best to use Carl Orton, Carl Ortwin Sauer's language again. The island Arawaks did this because across large swaths of South America, similar societies as the Taino sprang up, all sharing a similar way of farming and a similar uh, religious system based on arietos, the ball game, giving prayers to various spirits called semis by the Taino. Now, I'm certainly not going to tell you that all your problems are going to be solved if you lived your life more like the Taino lived theirs. But I can tell you that in the 21st century, we live in a rapidly changing world. That means we have uh, 
and in part, that is a result of the unbalanced relationship that our society has with the natural world. Our food systems are based far too much on mono-agriculture. We have farms that grow only corn or only wheat, or farms that raise and slaughter only pigs. And as a result, we are starving the planet's ecosystem of life's diversity in the same way that you would be starving the ecosystem of your body if you ate only bread. In doing this, we just may find the keys to our own destruction. I hope that is not the future, and I also hope that Taino give us something to learn. Now, Carl Orton Sauer ends his chapter on the Taino by stating that the idyllic accounts of Taino life by people like Columbus and Peter Martyr were actually largely true. Quote, the people suffered no want. They took care of their plantings, were dexterous at fishing, and bold canoeists and swimmers. They designed attractive houses and kept them clean. They found aesthetic expression in woodworking. They had leisure to enjoy diversion in ball games, dances, and music. They lived in peace and amity. Unquote. Now that might be taking it a little far. They were literally at war with the Carib peoples at the time. But with that said, he's largely right. Now, before we turn our attention to how all of that changed, first let's do some math. And no, and I really, seriously, I know. Nobody hates math as much as I do. But we need to do just a little bit of math. Or should, I should say I need to do just a little bit of math. Because I'm making a pretty extraordinary claim this episode. That's that the Spanish discoverers of the Americas committed genocide against the Taino. Now, I mean, one of the most common assumptions about the pre-Columbian Americas, and I don't just mean by lay people, but even many historians and so-called experts, is that the pre-Columbian population of the Americas wasn't all that big to begin with. And I mean, if we're just talking about scattered groups of hunter-gatherers, then sure. It's a tragedy that many of them died, but, you know, it doesn't really even rise to the level of genocide. Now, if we take this viewpoint of the Americas, we would estimate that maybe one or two million people lived in the Americas in 1492, the vast majority of those in Mexico and Peru. Now, if you've listened to my series, People of the Sun, you are probably aware that those numbers are ludicrously low. If we instead listen to Bartolomeo Columbus's initial estimate of the Taino population on Hispaniola, we find a number of perhaps 2 million people or more living there in just 1496. And thus Las Casas's extrapolated figure of 3 million Tainos on Hispaniola in 1492 at the first uh, moment of first contact. And, and, and here's where some math is going to come in. So let's start with the square mileage of Hispaniola. That's 29,418 miles. Now, we have a population estimate, and we have a square mileage. So for Hispaniola, I can find out the population per square mile. And forgive my being American and not using the metric system, by the way. So theoretically, I could extrapolate from that number to get an estimate on the population for all of the Americas, right? Well, let's start with the Caribbean because that's the most difficult part to measure. 
I mean, Hispaniola was easy, but I have to look up each individual island and add up the sum for the total mileage for the entirety of the Caribbean. It's a pain in the butt. But the number I've gotten to is 61,275 square miles for all Caribbean islands I could find that had at least a uh, diameter of two square miles. Okay. Now, let's add North and South America to that. North America is roughly 9,365,000 square miles. South America is roughly 6,888,000 square miles. And altogether, that is 16,314,275 square miles, give or take, if my math is correct. Now, I can't just take the Hispaniola numbers and apply them to the entirety of the Americas. There are mountain ranges, deserts, the Great Plains, tundra at both ends of the Americas. I mean, there's plenty of spaces where not a lot of people lived. I mean, people kind of did live everywhere, but I mean, villages and cities only emerged in places where enough food and water was available, such as on Hispaniola. So if we're going to make use, any use of the population number of Hispaniola, I'm going to have to scale down that estimate, I think. Let's take for starters Bartolomeo Columbus's initial estimate of 1496, that 1.3 million Tainos lived on Hispaniola. Now, I think that might even be an undercount based on my readings, but we're not going to go with that figure. Let's say in 1492 only 250,000. Tainos lived on Hispaniola, which would mean that on Hispaniola, there were 8.5 people per square mile. Now, if we extrapolate from that number, it's my guess, then we can estimate that 520,000 people lived at the Caribbean if the islands averaged out a population of 8.5 people per square mile. And if we use this population density as an average for the entirety of North and South America, along with the Caribbean, we get to a staggering figure of 138,150,500 people. And that is breathtaking. Might even very well be off, wrong. But even if my estimate is wildly off, we could subtract 38 million people from my estimate. And that would leave us with 100 million people living in the Americas at 1492. And even if my estimate has doubled the population of the Americas, if only 4.5 people per square mile lived in the Americas, then we'd still have a population of something just shy of 70 million people. Now, those numbers may seem very large, but they certainly would explain Mesoamerica's population, the Aztec Empire, consisted of about 6 million people. And there are another estimated 3 to 5 million people who were not in the Aztec Empire, but who did live in Mexico before the conquest. Perhaps another 9 million more people lived under the rule of the Inca Empire. And throughout North and South America, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you look at a map, there are plentiful river systems and most of those supported large-scale sedentary societies. Now, it's hard to say exactly how many people lived in the Americas before 1492, but it was an awful fucking lot of them, and probably more than 100 million, in fact. Now, in fairness, math, using my math, my simple math, is 
only capable of dispelling one of the two reasons why people have argued that the Spanish conquest of the Americas was not a genocide. Because the second figure, the second reason, excuse me, disregards the number of deaths altogether. That reason is the incidental disease transmission, which did kill huge numbers of Native Americans, probably the vast majority of Native Americans. And in fact, diseases like malaria, smallpox, and influenza rapidly spread through the Americas in the 16th century. In some cases, entire uh, societies collapsed as a result of those diseases, and new societies took form. But while that was true in many cases, it was not true in all of them. The Taino were not decimated by disease in the same way as were, say, Mississippian chiefdoms in the southeastern United States, or perhaps some of the other Arawak chiefdoms on the Amazon. I mean, those societies seem to have collapsed as a result, at least in part because of disease. But the survivors of those society of those collapses carried some of the previous traditions of the older societies into newer societies. And those formed in a post-disease landscape. Taino society didn't collapse and reform into something new as a result of old world disease, however. The Taino were systematically enslaved, brought to concentration camps that were built without sanitation, and then worked to death in gold mines. No Taino person recorded their experiences after the arrival of the Spanish, so it makes it slightly more difficult to make the case, or even to understand what happened to them. But we have plenty of modern examples of people who were in very similar situations and who have left us written records. The Taino were congregated in Spanish towns and forts and forced to mine for gold or perform other difficult work in the Caribbean heat until they died. One person's life, who was very similar to these unfortunate Taino, was born in Germany in 1929. Her name was Anne Frank. Now, if you are not familiar with the diary of Anne Frank, it details the life of a young girl who was born in Germany to Dutch and to Jewish parents. She was eventually captured by the Nazis with her father. He was immediately sent to a death camp because he was too old and unfit to work. Anne was one of the youngest people to be spared that fate. She had just turned 15. As a birthday present, the Nazis sent her to the Leibau labor camp, where she hauled rocks and dug up rolls of sod. Conditions were very poor for the inmates of Leibau, and to be brief, in, 14, in excuse me, 1945, an outbreak of typhoid broke out. In total, that outbreak of typhoid killed 17,000 prisoners, and Frank was amongst them. Now, I don't know about you, but I am of the opinion that Anne Frank died in the Holocaust and is a victim of genocide. The concept 
that a person might be overworked and malnourished and thus die of disease isn't a modern one. Doesn't require even the knowledge of germ theory, which for your information was around in the 1940s. But regardless, while the Spanish might have been surprised at how quickly the Taino were dying, I cannot absolve them of genocide because it was a systematic effort. Now, I'm not saying that all the Spanish conquistadors were just a bunch of Hitlers and Gorings because that's not true. I mean, some of them were real, I mean, just butchers. But for a lot of them, the genocide was incidental because they were focused on themselves. They certainly weren't focused on the humanity of the Taino. They were focused on obtaining wealth, getting gold. And the Taino were a means to wealth. And that was what was really important, gold, getting gold. And you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. That's basically the attitude that most Spanish had towards the colonization of the Caribbean. So that's basically why the Spanish octopus spread out, to look for more gold. This gold-seeking, colonizing force conquered the Taino and then continued strangling the life from them in an effort to extract every ounce of gold from the Caribbean as was possible. Additional tentacles of the octopus looked outwards to the mainland, looking for footholds and additional expansion and more gold, of course. That's why I've coined the term the Spanish octopus. Marshall Eakin, author of the History of Latin America, writes, quote, The Spanish moved through the conquest of the islands in what he called a stepping stone process, unquote. Now, we all know that my metaphor is better, but that, admittedly, that's still a pretty good way of describing the process by which the Spanish moved outwards. Now, Hispaniola was the base of operations from which the conquest of Cuba was enacted. And likewise, Cuba, the base of operations from which the invasion of Mexico stemmed from. And the conquest itself operated on a seniority system. The senior members of an expedition got the most land, Indians, and gold. In turn, those who got smaller shares often led later arrivals to the Caribbean looking for more gold and land to conquer. The crucible kind of served as the crucible of the Americas for the Spanish, to again quote Eakin, a place where the Spanish developed the colonial processes and policies that were then replicated on the mainland. Philip Curtin, who is an absolute giant in the field of Atlantic history, by the way, argues in his book The Rise and Fall of the Plantation Complex that the Spanish colonial process was in constant tension between two forces within Spain. One, who wished to break out of imperial control. And these were the freelancing conquistadors who wished to plunder the Americas. They wanted to capture whatever booty they could find and escape whatever obligations to the Spanish crown and government they could. And also the other force, the force within Spain who wished to extend imperial control, bureaucrats and agents of the crown who sought to create institutions capable of governing these overseas territories. Now, the tension between these two forces within Spain meant that as soon as the monarchy was able to establish control of Hispaniola, the freelancing conquistadors escaped by fanning out across the Caribbean to Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, as well as onto mainland North and South America eventually. And in turn, the Spanish bureaucracy followed. 
Now, the genocide of the Taino began under Christopher Columbus, as we talked about last episode. And it accelerated after he was removed from power. Francisco Bobadilla was made governor on May 21st, 1499, and he spent the first, or the, spent the two years of his governorship of the island warring against rebelling Tainos, and through war and enslavement, he was able to get the gold mines fully operational and profitable. Back in Spain, Bobadilla, though, was thought to have allowed the colonists perhaps a bit too large a share of the gold. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and perhaps that was the incentive which got the gold mines working so well. But either way, Bobadilla was recalled to Spain. And if you will also remember last episode, he never did make it back. Bobadilla and all the gold collected during his reign and before, except for one tiny ship which happened to also have Christopher Columbus's treasure on it, all of those, sh- the whole fleet was lost when a hurricane struck in July 1502. And that's basically where we left off uh, on the arrival of the third governor of Hispaniola, the Fray Nicolas de Ovando. Ovando was along Columbus's second voyage and greatly aided the old Almirante as one of his chief captains in the so called pacification of the Taino. There, Ovando earned a reputation for cruelty. He literally collected uh, human ears at that time, Uh, but he was also apparently quite a charismatic and fairly handsome fellow, and Queen Isabella adored him despite his murderous ways. Anyway, the new, new governor arrived in April in 1502, along with the fleet carrying 2,500 other people or so. Some were administrators... Others intended to settle. Most came to pillage and rape. Before Ovando's arrival, only about 300 Spaniards were alive on the island, which is roughly the same number that had lived there since Columbus was removed from power, and was a fraction of the number who had come in the decade since 1492. These 300 were scattered about the island, some at Santo Domingo, which had port facility and uh, administrative offices, but although otherwise the capital of Hispaniola consisted of you know little more than some military personnel and a few uh, encomenderos along with their slaves, um, other Spaniards were scattered about the island in the other Spanish towns, and uh, um, a few were living in various Indian Indian communities, living as they pleased and where they pleased. And generally speaking, the Spaniards preferred to live as they pleased, as close to as possible as one of the two mining districts. Now, the landing of Ovando and the 2,500 newcomers put an immediate strain on Hispaniola's economy. The soldiers, cocky young hidalgos, government officials, various artisans, religious men, and even a few families, since women and children were for the first time brought from Spain in 1502, well, they all needed to find their way into a place on Hispaniola. Now, the conquerors included nobles and commoners, um, who, quoting Eric Wolfe, um, quote, after the conquest rapidly divided further into various and often antagonistic layers, the captains of real wealth and power, the men of moderate means, skill, and influence, and an array of power-hungry followers who depended upon others for their bread and water, as well as host of vagrants who lived along the margins. 
Yet all the Spaniards shared an interest in maintaining their common superiority as conquerors over the conquered, unquote. Now, before this voyage, men went to Hispaniola as a tour of duty or as a chance at adventure. It wasn't really a place for colonization, but times in Spain were quite bad in 1502. And these bad times at home were happening at the same time as Bobadilla's successful efforts in providing freer access to the mining districts. Uh, And there was a brief golden age uh, on Hispaniola with the economy uh, at the same time as there was a bad economy in Spain. And these two factors provided the economic draw for the first European settlers to come to the Americas in search of a better life. Now, when the newcomers arrived, most proceeded directly to the gold fields. Hispaniola's gold extraction industry was a brand new operation. Work camps at key sites where gold had already been found and which were designed and constructed by the Spanish and worked by Taino slaves. Um, And they were worked by Taino slaves in shifts known as demoras. The length of the demora was six months at first. As gold became more scarce, the demora was lengthened to eight months. The mines themselves were very small, continuously occupied by large numbers of workers. And in the humid, tropical environment of the Caribbean, this was an excellent condition for water and soil contamination. The Spanish, blinded by their lust for gold, didn't bother themselves so much with worrying about how sanitary the mines were, and this made things much, much worse. The mines became a breeding place for disease. Las Casas estimated that between a fourth and a third of Taino laborers died each demora, and he registered this forced labor in the mines as a major cause of death on the island. And we're not talking about smallpox and influenza here, although certainly many Tainos died of old world disease. The diseases that killed the most Tainos in the work camps were not caused by pathogens foreign to the Americans. They were caused by the unsanitary conditions. These are diseases of the slums. Cholera, caused by eating or drinking something Uh, touched by water contaminated by human feces. Typhoid fever is spread the same way. It's caused by a salmonella bacteria that you get from from contaminated water. Tuberculosis, that's a lung disease that occurs in unsanitary conditions when people are malnourished. Now, these three killers were not brought to the Americas accidentally by Spanish conquistadors. They were unleashed in the Americas, on a massive scale, as a direct result of Spanish colonialism. As the Spanish newcomers moved into the camps, they also got sick, and many died, albeit at a less frequent rate than their Taino slaves. But incidentally, disease is a big reason why only 300 Spaniards were alive in 1502 on Hispaniola in the first place. Regardless, by the end of the year, 1503, Only about 1,500 Spaniards were alive on Hispaniola, slightly more than half of the 2,800 or so who were on the island in April uh, the year before when Ovando's fleet unloaded. Now, this was, in some ways, a low point for the colony. Not a fun time to be around. 
Remember, this was the fleet of colonists who arrived just a couple of months before the hurricane sank the treasure fleet, killed the old governor Bobadilla, and destroyed the town of Santo Domingo. Many people, in fact, believed that Columbus was a great sorcerer who was responsible for this. Now, sorcery or no, Ovando saw an opportunity to rebuild his capital. He moved Santo Domingo to its current location, which, if you're curious, is on the opposite side of the river from which it originally rested, and he rebuilt it larger and in a rectangular pattern with trained masons, carpenters, and tile workers to build it in a proper Spanish manner. In fact, from Ovando's perspective, the hurricane might not have necessarily been all that bad a thing in the first place. It allowed him to employ the skilled laborers which he'd brought along, thereby keeping them employed and far too busy to think about rebellion. And that was in addition to the fact that the new Santo Domingo was just a much nicer town than the old one had been. Now, Avando was given elaborate instructions on how he was to treat the Indians well, since by 1502 it was well known in Spain how the Taino were being abused. But like I said, Avando was the sort of person who'd collected human ears during his first stint in Hispaniola as one of Columbus's captains. And Ovando, who was technically a Catholic friar, took his instructions to mean that he would be free to engage in a violent pacification of the Taino if there were a rebellion to cause it, just like Columbus had done. But unlike Columbus, he would not be sending shiploads of Taino slaves back to Spain, where the sight of dead and dying slaves was generally considered horrific by most observers and was why Columbus had gotten in trouble uh, in the first place, or one of the big reasons, anyway. Ovando quickly found reason, though, to engage in a violent pacification of the Taino. Hmm. While he was technically a fray, Ovando was the commander of a military religious order, and in the words of Carl Ortwin Sauer, quote, his vows laid no obligation of humanity upon him, unquote. One of his first orders of business, in fact, was to establish a port on the north coast of Hispaniola, and he and his crew set around Hispaniola's east side, where they stopped at the island of Bella Soana given as a gift by Columbus to Michel de Cuneo. Now, Spanish ships routinely stopped at Bella Soana as they passed around the eastern side of Hispaniola, since the Taino who lived there had been quickly vassalized and were accustomed to providing cassava to sp Spanish ships. A local cacique was supervising the loading of cassava bread onto Ovando's ships when one of the conquistadors decided he wanted to see what would happen if he sicked his mastiff on the man. The dog tore the cacique to pieces. In consequence, the Taino of Bella Sawana revolted. This gave Ovando the opportunity to march his troops onto the island in order to carry out the pacification of Bella Sawana. During this, island, during this episode, the island was wholly depopulated and has remained so ever since. We know of this incident because amongst Ovando's crew was a young Bartolomé de Las Casas. This is what Las Casas tells us about the arrival of Ovando's fleet into the Caribbean. He says the Spaniards disembarked on Hispaniola like ravening wild beasts, wolves, tigers, or lions that had been starved for many days. He called Ovando's war unjustly cruel and bloody. 
The Spaniards killed the rulers and young men and enslaved the survivors, what Las Casas called, quote, infernal methods of tyranny, unquote. The reason Las Casas stated for the killing and destroying of an infinite number of souls, as he described them, was for Christians to acquire gold, quote, and to swell themselves with riches in a very brief time and thus rise to high estate disproportionate to their merits. Their insatiable greed and ambition, the greatest ever seen in the world, is the cause of their villainies, unquote. According to Las Casas' observation, the Spanish treated cattle and horses with more respect than they did the Taino. For the Spaniards, he said, quote, have treated their beasts with some respect. The Taino in comparison, like excrement on the public squares, unquote. As evidence for his accusations, Las Casas provides examples of what he witnessed. With their horses and pikes, the Spanish, quote, began to carry out massacres and strange cruelties. They attacked the towns and spared neither the children nor the aged, nor the pregnant women, nor children in childbed, not only stabbing and dismembering them, but cutting them to pieces as if dealing with sheep in the slaughterhouse. They led bets as to who, with one stroke of the sword, could split a man in two, or cut off his head, or spill out his entrails with a single stroke of the pike. They took infants from their mother's breasts, smashing them by the legs, snatching them by the legs, and pitching them headfirst against the crags, or snatched them by the arms and threw them into the rivers, and roared with laughter, saying as the babies fell, Boil there, you devil of an offspring! Other infants they put to the sword, along with their mothers and anyone else who happened to be uh, nearby. They made some low, wide gallows on which the hanged victim's feet almost touched the ground, stringing up their victims in lots of thirteen in memory of our Redeemer and his twelve apostles, and then set the burning wood at their feet and thus burned them alive. To others they attached straw or wrapped their whole bodies in straw and set them afire. With still others, all those they wanted to capture alive, they cut off their hands and hung them round the victim's neck, saying, Go now, carry the message, meaning, take the news to the Indians who have fled to the mountains. They usually dealt with the chieftains and nobles in the following way. They made a grid of rods which they placed on forked sticks, then lashed the victims to the grid and lighted a smoldering fire underneath, so that little by little, as those captives screamed in despair and torment, their souls would leave them. Unquote. This is the so-called just war that Las Casas and others fought against. And this, as much if not more so than any disease, or all the diseases put together, is what happened to the Taino. Las Casas was not done with what I just read describing atrocities he saw in Hispaniola. Quote, I once saw four or five nobles lashed on grids and burning, 
I even recall that there were two or three pairs of grids where others were burning. And because they uttered such loud screams that they disturbed the captain's sleep, he ordered them to be strangled. But the constable, who was worse than an executioner, did not obey that order, but instead put a stick over the victim's tongues so they could not make a sound, and then stirred up the fire, but not too much, so that they roasted slowly, as he liked." Unquote. The Taino who could fled to the mountains. After the conquest of Bella Sawana, Ovando went to war with the natives of Higüe, the still free Taino state on the eastern peninsula of Hispaniola that was not under the control of the Spanish, but which some of the Taino in Higüe had supported the revolt of Bella Sawana. Bella Sawana was completely depopulated before Ovando offered terms of the peace to Higüe. Henceforth, Higüe would take Bella Sawana's place, supplying cassava and other food as demanded by Spanish ships. The surviving people of Higüe, after the war, agreed to this, likely hoping that by provisioning the Spanish, they would be able to keep their lands from being placed under repartimiento. After the successful conquest of the east, Ovando marched to the western part of the island, in late 1503, to visit the Queen Anacoana in the Taino state of Zaragua. Anacoana played a long role in the history of Hispaniola. She was the widow of Caunobo and the sister of Bejecio, so she was related to two of the five highest-ranking caciques on Hispaniola in 1492. When her brother Bejecio died, Anacoana took his place as the ruler of Zaragua, and the Taino which was, the, like I said, the Taino state on the western side of the island. Years before, she and her brother received Bartolomeo Columbus and made themselves voluntary tributes to the Spanish. Later, they again made a similar agreement with Rodan when his rebel forces moved in. And since then, Zaragua had gone about more or less without disruption. When Ovando arrived, he and his forces were welcomed and entertained lavishly by Anacoana and an assembly of her subordinate caciques, who honored Ovando in a similar fashion as his predecessors. According to one account, there were three scores of caciques, and another, the number was in the hundreds. Either way, in the midst of the festivities, Avando gave the secret signal for his true purpose, and the massacre began. Those of high rank were imprisoned within Anacoana's palace, burned alongside her within the royal bohio. Those of lesser rank were cut to pieces. Excuse me, the queen was not burned in the palace. The queen alone, quote, was reserved for a decent hanging. Unquote, according to Las Casas. Excuse me. Quote, Those who did not perish in the conflagration were put to the sword or the pike, along with a countless number of the common people. Unquote. This was during Columbus's third voyage, and was when he was shipwrecked on Jamaica, 
A certain Diego Mendez, who sought help for the shipwrecked victims by escaping on a canoe, had come to seek aid on Hispaniola, and also witnessed the act. He reported that Ovando, quote, caused to be burned and hanged 84 caciques and with them Anacuana, unquote. A few people managed to escape the slaughter. They fled to a nearby island. Las Casas tells us that Ovando, quote, condemned all those who had gone there to be sold as slaves because they had fled the butchery, unquote. The governor's stated reasoning for the sneak attack was that he expected a treasonable uprising. Ovando was not finished. In 1504, he returned to the east and conducted the so-called War of Higüe. In this war, the last major cacique was eliminated in operations led by Juan de Esquivel and Juan Ponce de Leon, both veterans of Columbus's earlier campaigns. Ovando's basic strategy was to give command to veterans, in fact, of Columbus's campaigns so that they could teach the new conquistadors how to be better conquistadors. Of this war, Las Casas stated that Higüe was ruled, quote, by an aged queen. They hanged her. And there were countless people that I saw burned alive, or cut to pieces, or tortured in many new ways of killing and inflicting pain. They also made slaves of many Indians, unquote. Ovando's chief officers in the war went on to great infamy. Esquival conquered Jamaica. Ponce de Leon conquered Puerto Rico. We'll get to that. As a result... During Ovando's first two years of rule on Hispaniola, he gained control of the entire island and broke the native political structure. Few caciques survived this period. Those who weren't liquidated were placed in a new role, that of overseer in the new Spanish system. Ovando continued the repartimiento, which Roldan first forced upon Columbus years ago, and which had developed into the means by which the Spanish controlled the natives, and by which Ovando controlled his conquistadors. Ovando named those who would receive lands and Taino slaves, and if the beneficiaries of Ovando's repartition did not satisfy him, by turning their lands and slaves into profit, then he replaced them with someone else who would. Cowing the rebellious Spanish Hidalgos was no easy task, but Ovando previously administered the encomienda in Spain, which, while not as brutal as that as would happen in the New World, uh, was the result of the successful Reconquista there. And he used that experience to grow this new, far worse encomienda system in the New World. Um, I mean, the difference in, in Spain, the encomienda, did not involve uh, working people to death in mines. I don't, that's, uh, Ovando, more than any other person, was the architect of the encomienda system which spread from Hispaniola throughout the New World along with the Spanish octopus. Now, Las Casas recorded the formation of the encomienda system. Quote, Ovando dissolved the many large villages there were and he gave to each Spaniard as many Indians as he wanted, to 150, 
to another 100, and to some more, to others less, according to whether each was in good favor. This distribution of Indians among the Spaniards was called the repartimiento, unquote. Ovando's decree meant constant work without rest for the Taino. The governor, quote, allowed cruel Spanish executioners to supervise and direct them. These people treated the Indians so harshly and with such inhumanity that they seemed to be ministers of hell, who day and night allowed not a moment of peace and rest. They beat them, slapped them, kicked them, and whipped them. The Indians never heard a kinder word from them than dogs. Because of the cruel and harsh treatment they received from the farmers and miners, in the continuous and intolerable tasks that they endured, and knowing for certain they would never survive but would die as they saw their fellow men dying, the Indians began to run away to the mountains where they could hide. Rural constables were appointed to hunt them down and bring them back. In the cities and towns of the Spaniards, Ovando appointed a citizen to achieve this task, whom he called Inspector, and, as if it was a salary, another hundred Indians, unquote, as payment for service to the constable. Unlike, say, the name Juan Ponce de Leon, who will later find death in La Florida, unlike Christopher Columbus, unlike Hernán Cortés, you may never have heard the name of Ovando, Nicolas de Ovando, until today. But he was an important conquistador and a real son of a bitch, and we should remember his name, even if it is for no other reason than to curse it. The conquered Tainos were thus given to the charge of individual Spaniards, or they were assigned to the service of the crown. Some were personal servants, but the vast majority conducted forced labor in the gold mines or the fields. The instructions from Spain were that the Taino were to be considered Spanish subjects and paid for the work they did. This was completely ignored, quoting Sauer, quote, these prescriptions may have been given in good faith, but they meant nothing on the island, unquote. The vast majority of Taino were trapped by the encomienda system to be used by force for whatever labor was required. The encomienda provided no outlet for these uh, people either who wished to protest the behavior of the genocidal behavior of the uh, Spaniards, uh, of the governor or the individual encomenderos who owned them in all but name. Now, Ovando ignored the instructions to treat the Taino in part, though, because he was a dickhead, but also in part because he was under significant pressure from Spain, just like Columbus and Passamont, or excuse me, Columbus and Bobadilla before him. Queen Isabella didn't really like Ovando's tactics, but she was on her deathbed. So much more important for Ovando was pleasing the very much still alive King Ferdinand who reminded Ovando again and again, as he had warned Columbus before him, that no matter what victories he achieved, no matter what he lands he conquered, what was really important was that he, Ferdinand, be receiving more gold. To do this, Ovando came up with a plan. 
he actually reduced the royal share of gold from one-half to one-fifth. And then he only awarded licenses to mind to specific encomenderos, those who produced the most gold. Now, basically, the Spaniards who could produce the most gold were the meanest, cruelest overseers, because the conquistador who worked his labors to death was able to procure more gold than the conquistador who gave out lunch breaks. The conquistadors who weren't producing enough gold lost their licenses. Ovando rewarded those who produced the most with the Taino slaves who he took away from those who produced the least. Now you might notice that this system of reward and denial seems to take absolutely no account of any sort of conservation of the labor force. Yes, you're right. All this system was was the most efficient exploitation of the land for the sake of obtaining gold. Ovando created a system with the consequences that were the destruction of Hispaniola's population um, and created, I, he expanded upon and, and worked upon the system that Columbus, the, you know, the guy involved with the Portuguese slave trade had, had, had built. Now, if you're thinking that as the Taino began dying off at higher and higher rates, that this would have slowed down? Uh, no, you're wrong. The, the Taino weren't considered in this at all. Um, as their population numbers dwindled, they became more in demand, and those who were still alive were just forced to work even harder to compensate for the lack of supply. That's how the demora got raised from six months to eight months. While the external economy of Hispaniola ran on the export of gold. Internal commerce focused on foodstuffs, mainly cassava bread, which was supplied to the mines and to provision ships. But uh, even far from the mining districts, many encomenderos found it was actually more profitable to send their work gangs to the mines for a price than to have them farm. According to Las Casas, quote, at first the Indians were kept working the mines for six months. Then the period was extended to eight. Many Spaniards did not hesitate to make the Indians work on Sundays and holidays. If they were not forced to mine gold, at least put them to work building houses, mending them, collecting wood, and other odd jobs. The food they gave to the Indians after so much work was bread, which if eaten with enough meat and other things was nourishing, but eaten without meat or fish or other food has little nutritive value, unquote. This is how the entire island of Hispaniola was transformed into a hellscape, where genocide and slavery were the only rules of the day. And we can thank Nicolas de Ovando for that more than any other person. Now, Ovando also left his mark on the Spanish colonization beyond simply assigning lands and natives to various conquistadors. Ovando carried instructions to found towns on the island as well. The Spanish crown desired that the Christians living in said island, the, the Spanish crown desired, quote, that the Christians living in said island, or who may live there in the future, shall not live dispersed, and none shall live outside of the towns, unquote. So about 10 years after the Spanish arrived at Hispaniola, Spanish and Indian communities began to be segregated, and this rule that Christians should uh, 
live in towns, another part of the Encomienda was another part of the Encomienda system um, uh, crafted by Ovando that spread along with the Spanish conquest to other parts of the New World. Spanish communities were known as villas, and the Indian settlements became known as pueblos, although uh, technically not until a little bit later. Santo Domingo became the prototype for Spanish-American cities. It was laid out on a grid, with a cathedral on one side of the main square, the governor's palace was on the other. A third side was comprised of the city council, and a fourth side of the square had the residence of the most important families of the community. Now, after this, uh, the repartimiento was completed, Ovando moved the Spanish into the villas, with the encomenderos then controlling the surrounding land, except for lands filled with minerals, which were reserved for the crown. This made the repartimiento under Ovando different than what Roldan had forced out of Columbus, uh, because previously the repartimientos did not involve the creation of villas or the setting up of local governments um, for the villas. In, in 1508, uh, the, the villas of Hispaniola asked for and received official corporation into the Spanish Empire. Each received its own royal court of, uh, coat of arms. Each villa was uh, situated in or near the most populous Indian districts. Ovando founded seven towns in western Hispaniola after massacring the caciques assembled by Anacoana. The governor followed the same pattern on the other side of the island, founding two towns after the conquest of Higüe on the southeast of the island. From 1508, uh, excuse me, from 1505 to 1508, Ovando built a flurry of towns, bringing the total to uh, 15 on Hispaniola at the height of the island's uh, economic golden age. Now, Santo Domingo remained the capital, and it began to take on the appearance of a Spanish city with rectangular blocks, public buildings, and houses built with masonry. Two towns, Buenaventura and Concepcion, served as the headquarters for the business of gold mining, though by this time the production of gold in some places at Hispaniola had changed from finding large nuggets to the production of fine gold, which is gold small enough to be poured through a salt shaker. The seven new towns in the west were mainly profitable as sources of labor for the mines. Though a small amount of copper mining was also taking place there when it was discovered, and towns near forests were able to additionally profit by selling Brazil wood. The towns in the southeast were prized for having lands good for producing crops, thus they became the breadbasket for the island, producing cassava which was loaded onto ships or carried overland to the mines. And all in all, for the conquistadors, uh, things were going well under Ovando. Santo Domingo saw population growth even. Um, at his arrival in the Caribbean, Ovando's that is, maybe 300 Europeans lived at Santo Domingo. By the end of his administration, the population of Santo Domingo was around 8,000. Gold miners were able to retain four-fifths of any gold they found. And the system of Taino labor, the demora, had become very organized. Some conquistadors were able to acquire significant wealth during this time, and those conquistadors would later use that wealth to organize and finance additional conquests. 
The Taino were also relocated, in many cases to the Spanish towns so that they could serve the Spaniards. It is difficult to, for me to put a name to such a policy without using words like ethnic cleansing and concentration camps. Because when you take a people and you force them to move off their lands, and the only term I know how to describe that is ethnic cleansing, and when such a people are forced to congregate and remain in work camps so that they can be used for slavery or rape or whatever else, the only word for such place is a concentration camp. The fact that 80 to 90% of the Taino died of disease doesn't excuse this behavior. And Frank died of disease. The entire Spanish venture into America was dependent upon treating the Taino as expendable. Spaniards grew wealthy as Taino were exterminated. Las Casas wrote that from between 1494 and 1508, he believed upwards of 3 million people died. Regardless of whether or not his estimate was correct, Columbus stated upon his visiting return to the island in 1504 that he was shocked. He believed perhaps six out of every seven Tainos had died in the four years since he'd last been on the island. Ovando's tactics didn't go unheralded back in Spain. Queen Isabella, on her deathbed, made King Ferdinand promise to remove Ovando from Hispaniola's governorship because of his ill treatment of the Taino. It is noting the guilt she felt, I think, at death's door about her complicity in all that had occurred on Hispaniola since 1492. Ferdinand honored her request, eventually, after she died, and he recalled Ovando. But before he did that, he sent Miguel de Pasamonte, um, a royal treasurer, to Hispaniola in November of 1508. Now, you might think that the royal treasurer would be a little bit below the governor in rank, and that would normally be true in title it was. But for several years, Miguel de Pasamonte controlled Hispaniola in fact, if not in name, because he controlled the purse strings for the entire colonial enterprise. At any rate, the reason I bring Pasamonte up now is that he conducted a survey upon his arrival of the population of the Tainos, and he found that 60,000 were all that were left, all of whom were under the control of one encomienda or another at one of the 15 Spanish villas. The reason Pasamonte had so much power in the Caribbean was because Ferdinand and Isabella decreed that the logical support for Spain's colonial enterprises were going to be centered in the city of Seville. On January 20, 1503, the monarchs commanded that, quote, a house of trade, unquote, be conducted, constructed, which would store and provide all equipment, supplies, and provisions needed for trade with the Indies, and would, would send those supplies there as appropriate. Incidentally, this gave a few powerful merchants in Seville a very powerful monopoly on trade in the, with the West Indies, and it made Pasamonte, the royal treasurer, a very important power broker on Hispaniola. Not only was a steady stream of reinforcements and supplies necessary for the health of the colony, 
Uh, Passamonte could also decide to pay or not pay for the necessary supplies that any future colonial ventures in the Caribbean required. So unless a conquistador was so wealthy he could finance a conquest all by himself, and that did happen, though rarely, the only other option was through Passamonte. And so Miguel de Passamonte took control of most of the Spanish octopus. Now, in the absence of all the human beings on Hispaniola, livestock grew and reproduced at incredible rates. The growing season for pasturage was year-long in the Caribbean, with delicious grasses that grew in the savannas of the larger islands. The vast fields of Canoco farms became pastures as the Taino declined. I mean, there were only alligators and crocodiles or whatever to prey upon the cattle, horses, and pigs. And a pattern of livestock ranching quickly formed on the island, which, like the encomienda system, was also transported to other parts of the Americas. Now, Avando set up a basic policy that st- stated that grazing land was not private property. But if any conquistador owned a herd of cattle or horses, then he could enjoy grazing rights. And if he did a good job, he could eventually obtain a land title. So this basically worked the same way as Ovando's gold mining policy, where encomenderos had to prove to Ovando that they could get a bunch of gold, and then uh, Ovando rewarded them with more labor. Um, Similarly, if a conquistador proved to Ovando that he was a competent rancher, then he would obtain a land grant. Now, with that said, it wasn't really the horses and cows so much that completely took over Hispaniola. It was the pigs. The hardy hogs introduced from Spain and the Canary Islands reproduced at a rapid rate. They rooted out plants in Canocos, literally speeding up the destruction of Taino farms. And as they wandered away from Spanish villas, they ate everything they could find from seashore to mountaintop. The pigs also quickly went feral. By 1508, in fact, Spaniards were issuing licenses to hunt pigs since they'd become such a problem. Pigs, more than anything else, transformed the Caribbean landscape like nothing else and later the rest of America. The reason I bring this up is important, or at least it will be later, because radical transformations are going to occur in the Americas as a result of the Native Americans dying and their fields being abandoned. And these transformations will, for later settlers in the Americas uh, from Europe, who will make, let them make them see a virgin landscape in some cases, and it will obscure the fact that they are also kind of taking possession of a land from an indigenous population which was disappearing from disease. Um, Anyway, to focus back on the economy of Hispaniola. Now, it becomes apparent by the end of Ovando's reign as governor that uh, the colony was in crisis. The gold mines were requiring deeper and deeper digging to find smaller and smaller flecks of gold. And this diminishing productivity required more labor so that the profits could continue. The labor supply was growing in shorter and shorter supply along with the gold. So in the midst of a great amount of prosperity, I mean, there are successful conquistadors on Hispaniola by this point who have grown fabulously wealthy. In the midst of that wealth, 
the colony was facing the prospects of sudden ruination. Both Ovando and Passamonte wrote letters to the king in May of 1509, where they expressed concern about the scarcity of natives. Ovando, ever the capable administrator, developed a simple plan that would save the economic fortunes of his burgeoning empire in the short term. The remedy for the labor shortage on Hispaniola was simple in Ovando's rule. To solve it, he authorized slaving voyages to other islands in the Caribbean so that more workers could be brought to the hellscape he'd created. Bartolomé de las Casas remarked upon the labor shortage, quote, The Spaniards, seeing that the Indians were dying and declining in numbers in the gold mining industry, on their farms, and in other jobs, and concerned only with their profits, thought it would be a good idea to replace the natives of Hispaniola, who were dying out, with Indians from the other islands. They told the king that the Lucayan Islands were full of idle people, of whom no use was being made, and who would never become Christians. They asked to equip a few ships in which to bring the Lucayan Indians to Hispaniola, and where they would help to mine the gold, to the king's advantage, of course, unquote. I added the of course. They received their permission, and a dozen of the wealthiest settlers in the gold districts contributed something like ten or twelve thousand gold dollars to supply three ships with sixty men to go and capture Indians on the islands now known as the Bahamas. Las Casas tells us that some of the Lucayans were tricked into going on the ships to Hispaniola. To prevent violent captures, the Spanish lied when possible told the Lucanes that the ships took them to the place where their dead ancestors lived. Quote, Las, quoting Las Casas here, But on arrival in Hispaniola, when they saw neither their parents nor those they loved, but only tools, such as spades, hoes, bars, and iron sticks, and the mines where they soon died, and realizing they had been tricked, some in bitter despair, killed themselves by drinking the sap of the bitter cassava. Unquote. Las Casas also reveals to us how Lucayan slaves were sold. They were divided into lots based on however many individuals had shares in the ship. Quote, no attempt was made in these lots not to separate husband and wife or father and son than if they had been brute animals. When some old and sick person fell to anyone's lot, the one who received him said, Give this old man to the devil, why should I take him, to feed and bury him? And this sick one, why do you give him to me, to heal him? Slaves were called a piece, and in the early 16th century, a Taino piece sold for four gold dollars, as if they were dealing with heads of cattle. Overcrowding on the ships was terrible, sometimes with 200, 300, or 500 people, all of them below deck. To prevent their escape, they closed the hatchways, and the Indians were left without light or air. It is very hot below deck, and besides, since the ships did not carry enough supplies, especially water, 
their unbearable thirst, the heat, grief, and overcrowding, some being on top of others. Many died or thrown in the sea, in such large numbers that a ship without a compass, map, or guide, but only following in the track of dead bodies, could find its way from the Luqueos to Hispaniola. There was not a single ship that went to attack the Indians of the Lucayan Indians and on, or of the mainland, which did not throw overboard one-third or one-quarter of those embarked, unquote. Las Casas was hardly the only one to record the genocide of the Lucayans. Peter Martyr wrote, quote, The Lucayans, torn from their homes, became perfectly desperate. Some have died from exhaustion, refusing all food, and hiding themselves in inaccessible valleys, deserted forests, and unknown mountain heights, while others have put an end to their unendurable lives, unquote. The profits from the brutal enslavement of the Lucayans were great enough, though, that in 1509, Ferdinand wrote to Ovando that his learned advisors, quote, found no conscientious objection, unquote, regarding bringing slaves to Hispaniola. But that from now on, the crown was going to need the first choice of such captives to work in the royal mines and plantations. Peter Martyr wrote that more than 40,000 persons of both sexes were taken out of the Lucayas, quote, for the unquenchable thirst for gold, unquote. The Spanish octopus spread in other directions as well. Last episode, I mentioned that some conquistadors undertook um, the so-called minor voyages. These largely followed in the footsteps of Columbus and satisfied the Spanish crown's desire for knowledge. Because uh, Columbus was so secretive with what he discovered, um, in part. Columbus held the title of commander of the ocean sea, and he wanted it all, um, and, and the islands found within it. Um, and this was also a title that Ovando had been granted from the king of Spain. But in practice, both men really only governed Hispaniola. And that's why uh, men like, uh, quote-unquote, the Merry Devil... Alonso de Ojeda, and Columbus's old pilot Juan de la Cosa obtained patronage to explore. Ojeda followed in the footsteps of Columbus, but then actually went ashore and explored parts of Central and South America, unlike Columbus. And by explored, I mean he and his men pillaged and plundered their way from place to place, visiting what is now Guyana, Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, Curacao, Aruba, Colombia, and most famously, Venezuela. He gave the nation its name, which translates into Little Venice, because of how the indigenous population was living in buildings built on top of a network of canals and other waterways similar to the Italian city. Now, Ojeda committed all sorts of piracies. He founded a colony, went to war with the natives, and but then abandoned his uh, fort to die in poverty back in Cuba after being shipwrecked. Um... Actually, as a result of Ojeda's war hawking, 69 of his men were actually killed by poison arrows, and amongst them was Juan de la Cosa. Perilonzo Nino, the original pilot for the Santa Maria, likewise obtained patronage for voyages to the Caribbean. He did so along with some partners, the brothers Guerra. Guerra excuse me. They went about slave raiding uh, at what is at the time was known as Paraya, basically the area around Trinidad, the southernmost Cari Caribbean island in Venezuela, 
where it nearly touches and the two land masses form a bay. This was known as the Pearl Coast in the 1500s. Peralonzo Nino returned to Spain with buckets of pearls, quote, some as big as hazelnuts, unquote. The human cargo was, like Columbus's attempt, nearly all dead or dying by the time they were unloaded in Spain. And as outrageous as this was to many in Spain, Queen Isabella amongst them, profits won out over humanity. Isabella issued an order in 1503 that permitted the enslavement of Indians from Central and South America on the grounds that they were incorrigible pagans and a menace to honest Christians. Rodrigo de Bastidas was another captain of one such minor voyage. He sailed to what is now Colombia, called Darien by the Spaniards. There he obtained gold and pearls, just before barely making it back to Hispaniola in worm-riddled ships. Bastidas was perhaps one of the luckiest conquistadors for that reason, uh, but also not just because he didn't die on the way back from Colombia to Hispaniola. Uh, also, because he, when he arrived back in Hispaniola, was sent back home by Ovando on the treasure ship called the Aguja, which was the single ship in the fleet which contained Columbus's treasure as well that survived the horrible hurricane of July 1502. Now, whew, even a conquistador who's really, really lucky, though, still can have some bad luck sometimes, because you'd think Bastides would have lived happily ever after with all his treasure, right? No. He went back out to the New World. He founded the colony of Santa Marta. Uh, this happens way in May 1526, just in the future, uh, years later from where we're kind of talking about. Um, he avoided danger from the local Indians by promising them protection from enslavement, but he made the mistake of forcing his Spanish hidalgos to do hard work, like hewing lumber and digging in the ground. When an epidemic of dysentery broke out, the colonists had enough, and one of uh, and, and one of them, Juan de uh, Villafuerte, started rebellion. Bastidas fled the colony for Santo Domingo and died of dysentery uh, before he got there. Uh, anyway, now we'll be talking a lot more about what happens, uh, a little bit more about those episodes, and more about what happens after as a result of those so-called minor voyages next episode. But I think it's worth mentioning a bit about this here. Because what becomes clear from examining the early ventures of the Spanish elsewhere from Hispaniola is that despite King Ferdinand's giving Ovando the same impressive titles as he had Columbus, the, Kling, uh, the king was also clearly beginning to realize that the scope of the discovery uh, was a lot larger than he initially believed, and he was very much interested in setting up other colonial governments that would not be subservient to Ovando to prevent Ovando or any of his governors from becoming a king of a realm greater than Spain. Uh, now, at any rate, Ferdinand's instincts to prevent any of his vassals from accruing too much power was exactly how Yanez Pinzon was given charge of Puerto Rico, known alternatively as San Juan and Borican at the time. Pinzon was given captaincy of the island by the king shortly after the death of Isabella uh, in 1505. Pinzon was ordered to pay his respects to Ovando, but he was not under Ovando's command, and he was not obligated to follow his orders. Now, with that said, though, Yanez Pinzon did not conquer Puerto Rico. He went, but if he attempted to conquer the island, he kind of failed. In fact, he was only there briefly, during which time he built a stockade, 
and left livestock. But it appears to me that as appealing as it might have sounded to him to have been the governor of Puerto Rico, he found it much more lucrative and worth his time to go south to the Pearl Coast, uh, like I said, where Trinidad meets Venezuela, and uh, obtain wealth by obtaining pearls. Anyway, in 1508, Ovando began organizing slave raids onto other islands beside Hispaniola, uh, like I said. Um, the Lucayan Islands uh, Indians uh, were quickly used up, uh, just as quickly as the Tainos of Hispaniola, and after that, um, Ovando moved on to other islands. Now, as a secondary motive, like I said, uh, Yanez Pinzon had kind of been given permission to uh, colonize Puerto Rico, Ovando was kind of interested in becoming the sole authority in those islands as well. He certainly wasn't a big fan of King Ferdinand's decision to gift the island of Puerto Rico to Pinzon, and he sent Sebastian de Ocampo uh, to survey Cuba. Uh, the circumnavigation and mapping of the island took eight months, um, and uh, it appeared that... Uh, uh, excuse me, that Ovando was preparing to invade Cuba. But as it became clear to him that Yanaz Pinzon was not going to be conquering Puerto Rico anytime soon, Ovando then also sent another Hidalgo, a very wealthy encomendero named Juan Ponce de Leon, who, uh, to perform a similar exploration of Puerto Rico. Leon set out in July 1508, and he learned that there was gold in Puerto Rico. His report back to Ovando in May of 1509 was one of the final events of Ovando's administration in Hispaniola. He was recalled. Now, we know very little about how the conquest of Puerto Rico operated, but Juan Ponce de Leon and Cristobal de Sotomayor were the two conquistadors in charge of the invasion. They had the money to finance it. Um... And when they arrived, they made alliances with some of the local caciques. It wasn't until 1511 that they went to war with their new allies, and it appears this war was either between Taino tribes or a civil war within a Taino tribe. We're not really sure. The Spanish picked a side, helped, and won. We do know a bit more about the effects of the conquest. Sure makes uh, Juan Ponce de Leon look like a giant prick, Las Casas reports that the, that the Spanish on Puerto Rico, quote, perpetrated the same acts of aggression against the Indians as on Hispaniola, adding to them many outstanding cruelties, massacres, and burnings of the people, or executing them by flinging them to the fierce dogs, torturing and oppressing the survivors, condemning them to the hard labor of the mines, and thus eradicating them from the earth, unquote. Pondin. Ponce de Leon was rewarded by King Ferdinand, also a prick, on February 25th, 1512, for the successful conquest of Puerto Rico. Ferdinand wrote, quote, You have done me a service by your efforts to pacify the island, and by branding the letter F on the brow of the Indians captured in war, enslaving them, and selling them to the highest bidder reserving a fifth part of the proceeds for me, unquote. So yeah, branding Fs on your slaves, that's nice. So soon afterwards, colonists were taken to the island and began seeking gold. A later governor of Puerto Rico reported, 
uh, in the 16th, later in the 16th century on the fate of the Puerto Ricans. Quote, at the time of the division, which was made when the island was annexed, there were 5,000 Indian men and 500 Indian women, not counting those who were not domesticated and who remained to be distributed. Today, there is not a single Indian left, except for a few who are brought from the mainland, about 12 or 15, unquote. As a brief aside, the Spanish succeeded in Puerto Rico for the same reasons they succeeded in Hispaniola, because they had Taino allies. Similar processes enabled the Spanish to expand into Cuba and Jamaica, and eventually, Taino armies, in fact, were allied with Spanish attacks on the American mainland. Cortes brought Cubans to Mexico. The conquistador Francisco Garay brought Tainos from Jamaica to aid his attack on uh, Panuco, a, a different part of Mexico. The Spanish sources provide little on the military formations or maneuvers on the battlefield, but what they do reveal is that the uh, Spanish did not and maybe could not conquer any indigenous groups single-handedly. Even with their more advanced weaponry and armor, indigenous allied forces participated in every successful Spanish conquest. From Columbus and his ally Guacanagari, uh, and every successful conquest afterwards, no Europeans conquered even a single island of the Caribbean or any parcel of the Americas without the help of the people who already lived there. Now, at any rate, after having instituted a policy of slave raiding, Ovando was recalled back to Spain in 1509 as per the dead Queen Isabella's wishes. Now, by this time, both natives and gold were in short supply. His departure was preceded, as I said, uh, by the arrival of Miguel de Pasamonte, the royal treasurer, and one of his most important jobs was to make sure the new, new, new governor did very little. That governor was none other than Diego Columbus, which proves that Christopher Columbus really was paranoid about King Ferdinand's feelings towards him and his family. Uh, Diego lacked the official backing from the crown to control the Indians like his father Orvando had. Uh, he was the governor of Hispaniola, but he was not the admiral of the Ocean Sea. And neither was he the sort of charismatic fellow who could force his policies into being from office. And so, frankly, with Pasamonte in charge of the Purse Springs, he accomplished very little. But he does kind of show that uh, the Columbus family was appreciated in Spain. In fact, um, anyway, Diego did assert his power once, uh, uh, and that was at the beginning of his time in office. He ordered the occupation of Jamaica, which did not have gold on it, and so it had not been exploited by the Spanish at, to, up to this point, except as a place to capture slaves. But the Spanish presence in the Caribbean was growing, and so Jamaica came to be seen as a place from which supplies could be obtained, especially food. Jamaica could, was used to supply uh, the new colonial ventures um, on the American coastline uh, at Uraba and Veragua. We'll more about them later. And Diego's father had obtained the Spanish title to Jamaica by means of the, him crash landing there. And Diego now had no intention of losing this property. 
in case Ferdinand decided to give the island to the colonies on the mainland, which it supplied with food. So, Diego sent Juan de Esquival to take the island in 1509. Now, Jamaica had no gold, but, quote, all the people agreed to its inviting character, unquote, according to Peter Martyr. Juan de Esquival, previous to his actions in Jamaica, served under Nicolas de Ovando, and for the previous governor, Esquival, quote, had broken the natives of southeastern Hispaniola, unquote. Penfilo de Narvaez, who's, who Carl Ortwin Sauer calls a bad actor, was second in authority to Esquival. And as in Puerto Rico, we actually don't know an awful lot about the conquest of Jamaica. Uh, I believe the letters Diego Columbus wrote back to Spain about the conquest, which could enlighten us a bit, were lost in the fire. Uh, in a fire. And uh, King Ferdinand wrote back, though, in 1511, and we do have that letter, his orders were that the natives of Jamaica should be immediately converted to Christianity and employed at providing provisions for the mainland and crews for building roads. At any rate, the hellscape the Spanish created on Hispaniola was duplicated on Jamaica. Numerous Spaniards living on Hispaniola, but who did not have encomiendas, achieved the status of an encomendero uh, on the island, and they received their own slaves there. Esquivel established himself on the north coast, near where Columbus had first discovered the island on his second voyage. He built a fort there He called the island uh, and called the island Santiago, which... Uh, was what the island was called by the Spanish at the time, not Jamaica. Now, we're short on details, but Esquivel subdued the native population with the same strategy of dividing and conquering that had worked on Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. The Taino who survived the initial wars of conquest were put to work producing cassava, maize, and cotton for export. Jamaican cotton was of better quality than elsewhere in the Caribbean. Little specific mention was made of shipping Spanish slaves out of Jamaica, but it must have happened as it did elsewhere. Now, two years after the conquest, Penfilo de Narvaez and his men left Jamaica to take part in the conquest of Cuba. Esquival stayed until he was replaced in 1515. His successor complained about the small number of natives he found there. Boo-hoo. Another Spanish bureaucrat predicted that the native population of Jamaica would be totally gone in two years. Esquivel's successor was Guerrero, Francisco de Guerrero. Guerrero came into Hispaniola on Columbus's second voyage, and he struck it rich in the gold fields there. After becoming wealthy, he financed his own attempted conquest uh, uh, in, um, on Guadalupe before eventually obtaining governorship of Jamaica. In 1511, he was given commission to conquer Guadalupe, which is a Carib-held island, and he was repulsed by the Caribs. Uh, Juan, de Leon, Juan Ponce de Leon actually tried his luck there as well, but he was no more successful. Peter Martyr relates of that, quote, Juan Ponce endured a severe check from the cannibals on the island of Guadalupe. When the Caribs beheld the Spanish ships, they concealed themselves in a place where they could spy upon all the movements of the people who might land. Ponce sent some women ashore to wash linen, and also some foot soldiers to obtain fresh water. The cannibals attacked suddenly and captured the women, dispersed the men, a small number of whom managed to escape. Ponce did not venture to attack the Caribs, fearing the poisoned arrows 
which these barbarous man-eaters used with fatal effect. Thus he lost his honor, unquote. The Caribs were remarkably successful against the Spanish and defended themselves against several more attempted invasions of the Spanish on Guadalupe. Uh, eventually, the Spanish stopped trying after failing in 1523. And even by the end of the 16th century, uh, Spaniards only lived on the coast of Guadalupe. Ponce de Leon, I guess, regained his honor like Garay by participating in the conquest of Jamaica in 1515, if you're the sort that finds conquest an honorable thing, I suppose. But that didn't get either of them much additional riches. And so later them, uh, later on, both of them would still be looking to conquer more and get more gold. Uh, Ponce de Leon will go to La Florida, and in 1519, Guerre plays a part in the story of the conquest of Mexico. But those are stories for later episodes. For now, we'll leave these two conquistadors' exploits off there in Jamaica awaiting their chance to become even more important makers of the Spanish Empire. At any rate, in Jamaica, Garay found little to do. There was a rapidly disappearing Taino population, a serious lack of gold, and ultimately uh, a limited demand for the food and cotton. He founded a couple of villas, but neither amounted to much of anything, and over time, Jamaica was overrun by livestock, even worse than on Hispaniola. Horses, cows, pigs, and goats all roamed free, wild in some cases. By 1519, when Narvaez left for Cuba, nearly all of the Taino on Jamaica were gone. Uh, many of the colonists left for Cuba along with Narvaez. Others left with Garay for the mainland, and Jamaica was a quiet backwater of the Spanish Empire. As for Cuba, it remained unconquered, to this point, in part because Columbus never found gold there. It also wasn't along the route to Hispaniola, so Spanish ships arrived there infrequently. Until 1508, then, Cuba was little visited by Europeans except for slave-takers who would briefly visit in Shanghai unfortunate uh, Tainos. But after 1508, when Nicolas de Ovando ordered the circumnavigation of Cuba, <clears throat> Uh, gold was discovered around this time, perhaps on that circumnavigation. I don't know exactly when, but by May in 1509, King Ferdinand had heard about it, and he wrote that there was, quote, some suspicion of gold in Cuba, unquote. When Diego Columbus took governorship of Hispaniola, he wished to send someone to, quote, know the secret of Cuba, unquote. And finally, in 1511, King Ferdinand approved a contract that would give Cuba's governorship to Diego Columbus and Diego Velazquez de Cuellar. Little time was wasted in overrunning the island over the course of the year. The Taino died, submitted, or fled. On March 12, 1512, King Ferdinand acknowledged the successful conquest. Vasquez de Cuellar was an experienced conquistador by this point. He had arrived in the Caribbean on Columbus's second voyage and had an encomienda on Hispaniola. Later, he was with Nicolas de Ovando in Zaragua, and it was he, Velasquez de Cuellar, who carried out the massacre of the assembled caciques at Ovando's command. Velasquez went on to help subjugate western Hispaniola, found numerous villas, and split Indians up into the new Spanish encomienda system. He was Ovando's de facto lieutenant governor in western Hispaniola, what is now Haiti, and he exploited the Taino there mercilessly. 
The villas in western Hispaniola failed quickly, and when they started to fail, many of the natives under Velazquez's rule fled across the Caribbean Sea. They escaped to Cuba. It's a famous incident in the history of the Taino. A cacique named Hatway led the escape, which Las Casas reported. Hatway escaped to Cuba with as many of his followers as he could with him. And, knowing the customs of the Spaniards, he always had his spies who brought him news of conditions in Hispaniola because he was afraid that someday the Spaniards would come to Cuba. And finally, he learned of the decision of the, of the Spaniards to move on it, unquote. Velazquez had his eyes on Cuba for some time before the invasion, and was chosen to lead the conquest because he was one of the wealthiest and most powerful people on Hispaniola. And when Hatue learned the Spanish intended to invade, he gathered his people, as well as the Tainos of Cuba, with whom he took refuge. Hatue reminded them of the various misdeeds which Spaniards had inflicted upon the Tainos of Hispaniola. He asked them, Do you know why they persecute us? And for what reason they do it? The people replied, They do it because they are cruel and bad. Hatway responded, The real reason that the Spanish killed and enslaved them was because they have a lord whom they love very much, and I will show him to you. Hatway produced a small basket made of woven palm fronds. It was full of gold. And he spoke again. Here is their lord, whom they serve and adore. To have this lord, they make us suffer. For him, they persecute us. For him, they have killed our parents, brothers, all our people, and our neighbors. They have deprived us of all of our possessions. For him, they seek and ill-treat us. And because... As you have already heard, they want to come here and seek only this Lord. And in order to find him and extract him, they will persecute us and annoy us, as they have done before in my own land. Therefore, let us throw it into the river, under the water, and they will not know where it is. Then Hathaway tossed the basket of gold into the river, the Tainos gathered with him did the same with all of their gold possessions. Meanwhile, Velazquez assembled 300 Spaniards on Hispaniola and told them of his intention and desire to capture Hatway and the refugees. They were joined by Narvaez and a band of Jamaican conquistadors. Velazquez then sailed to Cuba with his crew and amongst them was Bartolomé de las Casas, so we know a lot more about the conquest of Cuba than we do about Puerto Rico or Jamaica, since in those places, las Casas only recorded what he learned from other conquistadors he met. Anyway, when they arrived, Velázquez captured Hatchway, quote, and as many followers as they could, and burned them all at the stake, unquote. Afterwards, the Spaniards engaged in an unprovoked slaughter of the village. Hatway has since become an adopted national hero of Cuba. Velazquez went on to set up his capital. Word spread quickly, and across Cuba, Tainos fled in fear of the Spanish. 
Velasquez sent Bartolomé de las Casas as a man of the cloth, ahead of the war party, with the job of reassuring the Tainos of the Spaniards' good intentions. Las Casas performed this, but the lies he told haunted him, and it was this, the conquest of Cuba, which made him begin questioning the morality of subjecting Tainos to Spanish rule. Las Casas described Cuba's conquest as an orgy of death and violence. Quote, I do not remember how much spilling of human blood marked that road, unquote. On one occasion, Las Casas informs us, quote, we went to claim a big settlement, along with food and maintenance, and we were welcomed with a bounteous quantity of fish and bread and cooked victuals. The Indians generously gave us all they could. Then, suddenly, without cause and without warning, and in my presence, the devil inhabited the Christians and spurred them to attack the Indians, men, women, and children who were sitting there before us. In the massacre that followed, the Spaniards put to the sword more than 3,000 souls. I saw such terrible cruelties done there as I had never seen before nor thought to see." Las Casas stated that within three months, 7,000 children died in Cuba. While I was there, some mothers drowned their children out of despair. Others, as soon as they realized that they were pregnant, took herbs to cause a miscarriage. The husbands died in the mines, and the women in the farm due to overwork. The newborn babies due to the lack of milk, unquote. Another incident Las Casas describes on Cuba was one where 200 Tainos hanged themselves out of despair. The reason, according to the chronicler, was that there were conquistadors in Cuba, quote, who, out of avarice, provided no food for the Indians who worked in the fields, and sent them for two or three days to grace in the country and eat the fruits from the trees on the mountains, and after this made them work two or three days more without another mouthful. In this way, one of them established a farm which was worth 500 or 600 gold dollars, and he himself related this to me, as if it were a feat of industry, unquote. The Taino population of Cuba was smaller than what it was on Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, or Jamaica. The Taino themselves were engaged in a process of colonizing the Caribbean themselves uh, when the Spanish arrived. And, and Cuba, the most northernmost Caribbean island, only recently had a Taino population who had originally arrived in the southern part of the Caribbean uh, 800 years before that. Now, that doesn't mean nobody was there, though. There was an older population called the Siboney by the Spanish, who also made Cuba home. Now, my episode Earthshaker has a lot of information about the Caribbean before 1492, so check out that episode if you haven't. But the short version is that the Siboney were the descendants of people who migrated into the Caribbean thousands, I think, years, maybe hundreds or thousands of years, long before either the Taino or the Caribs, suffice to say. Uh, Anyway, Cuba was a busy place, with Taino and Siboney natives side by side, probably not completely peacefully, but not in a state of war, uh, and let alone a state of genocidal slaughter. These two separate societies were joined by foreign traders, um, both from the Yucatan and from the North American Southeast. Now, the Spanish barely 
understood any of this by the time practically everyone on Cuba was dead. Now, of course, discovering new lands and peoples weren't really the reason Velazquez and Nervais had come to Cuba in the first place. Uh, they arrived to subjugate the island and get all the gold. But after arriving, Velazquez stayed in the south of the island. He set up the capital and government, and from that spot, wrote back to the king that Cuba was such a lovely place that it should replace Hispaniola as the Spanish administrative center in the New World. And in fact, if one were at Darien, then Cuba was a better route home than Hispaniola. Now, but while Valesquez busied himself with this, Narvaez went about the dirty business of campaigning across the island uh, of Cuba. Gold was discovered shortly afterwards in the streams of the high country, uh, in the middle of uh, the island, and a new gold rush began. Now to Cuba, instead of Hispaniola, and many of the would-be miners came not from Spain, but from Hispaniola. Many people left Hispaniola, in fact, for Cuba. In fact, by February in 1513, the government of Hispaniola asked the crown to stop giving license to miners and workmen from Hispaniola who were seeking permission to leave. Velazquez founded six villas on Cuba by 1514 by this point, and added a seventh, Santiago de Cuba, in 1515, and that served as his residence and capital. He was addressed as capitan of the island and was no longer subordinate to Diego Columbus, the governor of Hispaniola. Velazquez got his funding for bringing settlers and creating villas uh, on Cuba directly from Pasamonte, the royal treasurer who was the real source of Spanish power in the New World at this time. And with that said, Velazquez's selection of Santiago put him at the far eastern end of Cuba, and that meant he was 300 leagues from the western side of the island, and that meant he had little knowledge about the goings-on on the far end of the island. And ultimately, that would cost him in the future when a conquistador named Hernán Cortés started getting ideas about how he could get out from the thumb of Velázquez, just like Velázquez had gotten out from the thumb of Diego Columbus. Anyway, that aside, the occupation of Cuba was a repetition of what happened in Hispaniola. The Spanish vecinos in the Cuban gold districts uh, I'm sorry, the Spanish vecinos uh, are the, the citizens, uh, got rich from working native labor. And um, the vecinos of Villas, not in the gold districts, got rich by lending their native labor uh, to the encomenderos in charge of the gold mines. The conquistadors argued that they arrived on Cuba to protect the Taino. Bartolomeo de las Casas received a repartimiento near the placer mines. Nobody is in a better position than Las Casas to understand the brutality of what was really happening. And it sure as hell wasn't protection. Las Casas became so thoroughly disillusioned and disgusted by the enterprise that in 1515 he renounced his encomienda before Velázquez and devoted the rest of his life to protecting the rights of the Indians. Las Casas stated that one immediate consequence of the, of the conquest was famine. Similar to the starving time on Hispaniola, quote, The perdition of these people was more vehement and accelerated because the captains went about the island pacifying the people and carrying off many of the Indians, whom they were continually seizing in the villages in order to have a use for them. In response, none of the Tainos were planting. Some fled. Others were in uproar, caring for nothing else save that they might not be killed, as was happening to many. Thus the whole land, or most of it, 
came to be lacking in food and was abandoned. The men and women in good health were taken to the mines and other labor. There remaining in the villages only the aged and infirm, unquote. Las Casas reported that one of his neighbors put 300 laborers to work in the mines, and in three months, only 30 remained alive after the Cuban starving time. As on the other Caribbean islands, people were replaced with livestock. In April 1514, Velasquez reported that 30,000 pigs lived on Cuba, which seems like a fucking lot, but Carl Ortwin Sauer says is within the realm of possibility, and I'll take his word for it. Well, his and Velasquez's, I suppose that is. Uh, anyway, um, in the absence of predators, like I said, there's only really, the, like, you, you know, the crocodiles and alligators or whatever, um, there are are thousands of hogs which root up and destroy the Kanokos uh, upon which the Taino depend, and this served to hasten the famine and death on Cuba. And once the Tainos began to disappear, Spanish conquistadors turned much of Cuba into ranch land for cattle and horses. And in the not-too-distant future, Cuba would provide animals for Cortez uh, for his conquest of Mexico. Cuba is only 90 miles or so from Florida, and it seems that the Spanish knew of Florida from at least 1502, since a peninsula appears in roughly the correct location of Florida in maps at the time. Certainly, by 1509, when the Bahamas were being depeopled, one or more Spanish vessels would have gone astray and seen Florida, but it is most likely that most of the knowledge the Spanish gained of Florida came first from captured natives. Despite this knowledge and the trade that went on between Florida and the Caribbean, the Straits of Florida represented a major cultural divide in the Americas. On one side, in the Caribbean, existed essentially uh, South American cultures, the Taino and the Caribs were both people whose ancestors migrated from South America into the Caribbean from the Orinoco River Basin. Their crops, yucca and sweet potatoes, chili pepper, peanuts, these were not grown in North America. And Floridian crops, corn, beans, and squash, were very rare in the Caribbean. The first attempt at conquest, the first tendril of the Spanish octopus, if you will, was led by Juan Ponce de Leon, whose ambitions continued after his successful conquest of Puerto Rico and his unsuccessful attempt at conquest of Guadalupe. And, in fact, of uh, despite the lack of gold from, uh, from his recent attempts, Ponce de Leon had become wealthy as an encomendero on Hispaniola, um, and uh, that wealth grew on Puerto Rico, which didn't have a lot of gold, but uh, Ponce de Leon appropriated to himself more land and Indians than was technically his legal right to do so, um, or at least he was charged with doing this, uh, at any rate. By 1512, Juan Ponce de Leon was looking beyond Puerto Rico to a place the natives called Bimini and would soon be named La Florida by the Spanish. After renaming 
Florida, Florida. The Spanish transferred the name Bimini to refer to a part of the Bahamas. The reason for this mix-up is that when the first Spanish ships visited Florida, um, they didn't realize that the coastlines for southern Florida and northern Florida were the same place. It's not really that important, but it explains how the name changed. Uh, at, it, at any rate, Ponce de Leon landed in Florida in the spring of 1513. It was the first time a Spanish conquistador landed in what is now the United States. The story of Juan Ponce de Leon, the fountain of youth, and the conquistadors like Hernando de Soto, and who later followed in his footsteps in North America, is a fascinating tale, but one that I am going to be saving for a later episode. For now... Let's switch our focus south, all the way south to the other end of the Caribbean at the Pearl Coast, where the coastal waters between the southernmost island in the Caribbean, Trinidad, and what now became known as Venezuela is. The Pearl Coast was discovered all the way back by Columbus in 1498, subsequently exploited, uh, exploited by Alonso de Ojeda and the Guerra brothers. These expeditions managed to get almost all the pearls that the native population had available for sale. Um, and in fact, the, the local Indians weren't set to work at pearl diving um, to procure more. Indicates that the Spanish did not have the upper hand in the relationship between them and the mainland Indians. Um, they still remained interested, uh, but the relationship between Spain and the mainland in the early years before disease ravages the coast uh, was one of more respect from the Spanish. At any rate, in 1509, Ovando returned to Spain, and he came bearing a fairly large sum of pearls, so the expedition, whatever... Um, so it's likely, I should say, that another expedition after that of Ojeda and the Guerra brothers had occurred, um, and that perhaps they had established a trading relationship with the natives of the Pearl Coast by that time. But we don't know uh, much about it. The trade was important enough, though, that orders had been given not to enslave natives from Trinidad to Hispaniola, so as to not disturb the trade of the Trinidad Caribs and the natives of the Pearl Coast. And remarkably, a, the relationship between the Spaniards, the natives of the Pearl Coast, um, and the Caribs of Trinidad was relatively peaceful. It's tempting to wonder what might have been, in fact, if the Spanish had chosen to interact this way in the Americas uh, overall, in a more peaceful nature with the peoples of the Americas they encountered. On the other hand... The Spanish were getting pearls from the region, and the way they got those pearls was by bringing enslaved Lucayans to the Pearl Coast and forcing them to dive for pearls from dusk till dawn. Las Casas believed this was the principal cause for the extinction of the Lucayans. Quote, The tyranny exercised in the work of pearl fishing is one of the most cruel things that can be imagined. The pearl divers dive into the sea from sunrise to sunset and remain for many minutes without breathing, tearing the oysters out of their rocky beds. They come to the surface with a netted bag of these oysters, where a Spanish torturer is waiting in a canoe or skiff. If the pearl diver shows signs of wanting to rest, he is showered with blows, his hair is pulled, and he is thrown back into the water, obliged to continue the hard work. The food given is codfish, not very nourishing, 
At night, the pearl divers are chained so they cannot escape. Often, a pearl diver does not return to the surface, for these waters are infested with man-eating sharks that can kill, eat, and swallow a man whole. And in this extraordinary labor, or better put to it, in this infernal labor, the Lucayan Indians are finally consumed, all of them publicly sold for 150 castaneos. Unquote. The Spanish built a so-called fort in the region at a small island called Cubagua, which amounted to little more than an encampment. It was occupied during pearl diving, and the lack of fortifications at the camp uh, is evidence of a relatively friendly relationship between Spaniards and the Indians of the Pearl Coast, where cooperation offered more profits to the Spanish than attempted conquest. Things were going well here, in fact, such that Franciscan and Dominican monks established themselves in the area in 1516, I'm sure you won't be surprised when I say that the years of peaceful coexistence, though, came to a sudden end, when one day a Spanish ship that had come to trade ended up kidnapping a local cacique and his men uh, at Trinidad. The Caribs were infuriated and, in consequence, killed the Dominican friars. They became the earliest martyrs in the New World. The next year, uh, in 1517, more Dominicans returned. They rebuilt a new mission. And, excuse me, when another Spanish ship took more slaves, though, in 1519, well, the Caribs rose in rebellion again and killed all the Christians, 80 of whom lost their lives. The islands of the Lesser Antilles were, uh, generally speaking, of lesser concern to the Spanish in comparison to the larger-sized Greater Antilles. Uh, this was the home of the Caribs. And they provided a foil, in some ways, to Spanish power in the Caribbean, if you want to make your history a narrative. And not just because on the island of Guadalupe did Spanish attempts at conquest, uh, you know, and not just because um, the Spanish attempts at conquest on Guadalupe were stopped again and again, excuse me. When a revolt occurred on Puerto Rico, it was supported from an island today known as St. Croix. The Spaniards knew it as Santa Cruz, and the reason why Caribs were helping their old enemy, the Taino, was because as much as the Caribs and the Taino didn't like each other, they really hated the Spanish. Santa Cruz was an excellent harbor and suffered continuous Spanish depredation both before and after the revolt at Puerto Rico. Eventually, the Spanish forced the Caribs off the island completely. It was abandoned, um, at least by 1515. That's when Ponce de Leon visited and found it deserted. Spanish didn't manage a whole lot of victories against the Caribs, though, uh, which might account in part for their fearsome reputation. Because the Caribs really are a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, it's possible, I'll say, maybe even likely, that they engaged in some sort of cannibalism. I imagine there's got to be some sort of kernel of truth to the stories of the Taino and the Spanish. They certainly wouldn't be the only culture to engage in the practice, um, let alone in just the Americas, you know. But again, I haven't yet found any accounts of the Spanish finding actual evidence of them doing so, except from the words of Taino captives of the Caribs, which were translated, of course. And so I, I, I just don't know anyway. It, for sure, 
it's a neat little mystery to me. At any rate, the largest of the Carib-held islands was Guadalupe. And in 1511, uh, Francisco de Garay undertook an expedition from Hispaniola to Guadalupe. He was forced to turn back after suffering severe losses. We mentioned that earlier, and we don't have many details about that one. Ponce de Leon tried again in 1515, four years later. He also failed against the Caribs on the forested island. Um, the Spanish tried several times after that, but uh, were, were continuously repelled. They were fearsome warriors, the Caribs were. But Spanish interest in the southern Caribbean was high. Uh, despite their inability to conquer the islands, uh, they were still seen as a potential source of slaves. And that was how much the demand for workers was in the encomiendas. Men were willing to risk their lives against poisoned arrows in the forest to capture slaves. Queen Isabella authorized the enslavement of Caribs in 1503. In 1511, King Ferdinand specifically named three islands he wished to see more slaves taken from in order to obtain the royal share of the profits. Those were Barbados, Tobago, and an island named Mayo, which isn't clear to me what modern island that refers to, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, by 1520, the Spanish slave raiding of the southern Caribbean had reached its zenith, and some of the Carib islands were depopulated as a result. The Virgin Islands and Barbados were written of as depopulated by that time, islands owned by the Caribs, but they were devoid of forests, and uh, so those and islands like those were reduced. But the Caribs also held islands such as Trinidad, Guadalupe, and St. Vincent, and these were well forested. And on these islands, the bow and arrow wielding uh, Caribs easily defended themselves against the Spanish. Slave raids were launched out from Santo Domingo on Hispaniola, then after the conquest of Puerto Rico from San Juan as well. Finally, when Cuba was taken, Santo, Santiago de Cuba represented a third front from which Spanish slavers launched rage in their caravels to bring slaves back to gold mines. Only, uh, only Margarita Island at this point in 1520 off the Pearl Coast was out of balance for slavers, though nearby Trinidad uh, was well forested and the Spanish basically left it alone as well. Other islands off the coast of Venezuela include Curacao, Bonaire, and Aruba. They were inhabited by an Arawakan people related to the Taino, though they spoke a different language and had a different culture in some ways. I'd love to tell you more about them, but these islands were raided and depopulated quickly, far more quickly than the Spanish could learn about them. The people there were sentenced to death in encomiendas. One Spanish official in Santo Domingo, though, raided Carib slaves as better than the Arawaks taken. Um, when he wrote on September 6, 1515, quote, remarking of the Caribs, quote, Few of them dying, good for a lot of use, but hard to guard because likely to escape in canoes, unquote. Carl Ortwin Sauer summarizes the consequences of the Spanish slave trade as, quote, starkly simple. The French, English, and Dutch colonies of the 17th century occupied islands that had been emptied of their natives early in the 16th century in order to keep Hispaniola going. To a great extent, 
the North European successors were able to live off the Spanish livestock that had replaced the Indians, unquote. Only cannibalistic Carib Indians were to be enslaved in Spanish law. But this was not enforced except occasionally when Taino slaves were brought to Spain. And the conquistadors were perfectly happy to declare an island as Carib so it could be legitimized as a source for slaves. Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao are prime examples. They were filled with Arawaks, but depopulated quickly, the captured slaves sold as Caribs. To say nothing of captives captured in, say, Florida, marked as Carib as well. Now, with that said, there were decent people in Europe utterly disgusted by this, chiefly amongst them, of course, Las Casas, but there were, of course, others. Las Casas was absolutely not alone, and these people wanted reform. Ultimately, they would get it, but reforming the Spanish legal system took a lot of time, and for the natives of the Caribbean, time was running out. The period of 1509 to 1519 has been termed by historians as the island crisis. During this time, reformers like Las Casas had little effect in countering the effects of the crisis uh, because Spanish government at the time was controlled by King Ferdinand and a few of his advisors who were all making an absolute fortune in gold on the Spanish colonies. Now, I think Bartolomé de las Casas was a great dude in history, so I, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about him. And Las Casas was born in Seville in 1484 into a family of merchants. His father, Pedro de las Casas, had enough money to send his son Bartolomé to school to study Latin instead of just entering the family business. And then, after doing that, Pedro went off with three of his brothers with Columbus, on the second voyage as conquistadors. Now, what the Las Casas family did exactly in the Caribbean is unknown, but Columbus gifted Pedro de Las Casas, uh, an Indian slave, who sent the slave back to Spain to serve his son Bartolomé. Excuse me. Bartolomé actually ended up giving his, excuse me, his Taino captive back to the Spanish authorities uh, so the unfortunate man could be returned to the Caribbean. Um, according to Bill Donovan in his introduction to the edition of Las Casas' Devastation of the Indies, a brief account that I uh, used with this episode. Anyway, Bartolomé was 18 in 1502. He left Spain with 2,500 other eager adventurers, along with the fleet of Nicolás de Ovando. He returned to Europe in 1506 and became ordained as a deacon in Rome and then left for the Caribbean again. In 1512, he became the first Catholic priest ordained in the New World. Bartolomé de las Casas thus met Oviando, who was a first-hand he, and was a first-hand participant in o Ovando's repartimiento of Hispaniola under the encomienda system, and ultimately, las Casas became an encomendero, technically charged by the crown to take care of the Indians under him, like all other encomenderos. But as las Casas reports to us. The encomienda system almost immediately, quote, degenerated into virtual slavery, unquote. During his first stay in the Caribbean, Las Casas met some of the most infamous, infamous conquistadors in history. Hernando Cortez, the future conqueror of Mexico, of course. 
He met Pedro de Alvarado, who participated in the conquest of Cuba and later conquered much of Central America. Las Casas, like Alvarado, participated in the conquest of Cuba. That was where he that was where Las Casas received his encomienda. It was a reward given to him by Diego de Velázquez and Panfilo de Narvaez, the leaders of the Cuban invasion. Quoting Bill Donovan again, quote, by all appearances, he had settled in to become a typical encomendero, unquote. But privately, Las Casas was increasingly concerned with the goings-on in the Spanish colonies and with his role in it. And in 1514, he went public with those concerns. One Sunday, Las Casas stunned his parishioners. He strongly condemned the treatment of native peoples. Soon afterwards, he freed his own slaves and began spending his time working hard on behalf of the Tainos. It was long believed that a sudden religious experience transformed Las Casas, but we now know that his conversion occurred gradually, over the course of a year or more, and he became increasingly disenchanted with the entire structure of Spanish-Indian relation during this time. At first, Las Casas challenged individual encomenderos who were abusing their slaves. But soon he realized that these individual encomenderos, as terrible as they might be, they weren't the root of the problem. The problem was with the entire system of encomienda. Las Casas denounced the rape, murder, and theft that was routine in the Indies. And this made him numerous powerful enemies amongst Spanish officials and encomenderos in the Caribbean, and some of these guys were really dangerous. But he made little headway in change. It took him six years before he finally got a royal audience, and he only got that because in 1520, Spanish officials charged him with lying about what they were doing on Hispaniola. In a chamber full of both supporters and opponents, Las Casas made his case. He not only convinced Charles V that he was telling the truth, but got the emperor to side with him and agreed that the Caribbean could be ruled without force of arms. But the ruling had no practical effect across the Atlantic. And for 25 years, Las Casas suffered defeat after defeat as he tried to defend the people on the Amer of the Americas. He began writing in 1522 and joined the Dominican Order, becoming a monk, and his two monumental works, Apologetica Historia de las Indias and the Historia de las Indias, um, in addition to his shorter Devastation de las Indias, um, were written at this time. And, and they mark Las Casas' career as a chronicler of Spanish atrocities as a much more effective one than his career as a social activist. But he didn't stop trying to help. And in 1537, Charles V supported Las Casas again and the Dominicans he worked with in their efforts to establish missions in Guatemala. And in the same year, more than four decades after 1492, the Pope issued a papal bull proclaiming that American Indians were indeed rational beings with souls. <laughs> it only took 40 years. Eventually, Las Casas directly influenced the Spanish crown's passing of the so-called Leyes Nuevas, new laws in English, which forbade the transference of encomiendas through family inheritance. Basically, a promise to forbid Indian slavery and end the encomienda system within a generation. 
the new laws were reportedly passed into law after Las Casas read the first version of his book, The Devastation of the Indies, out loud to the royal court, basically horrifying and shaming the emperor into signing the law. Las Casas returned to the Indies after the signing of the Leyes Nuevas, and then was promptly banned from the Caribbean by the Council of Indies and was recalled to Spain again in 1547. There, he met a dangerous foe, legally speaking. Juan Jiménez de Sepúlveda, one of Spain's leading humanists, who possessed not only an impressive intellect, but formidable friends at court. Sepúlveda put together an intellectual defense of Spanish aggression in the Americas, based on the doctrine of just war. Las Casas argued against Sepúlveda's arguments, basically by continuing to describe Spanish atrocities that, in some cases, he witnessed firsthand, and oftentimes he would name individual Spaniards responsible for specific acts of murder, rape, and torture. In 1550, Las Casas' arguments forced the Council of Indies, therefore, to recommend a meeting of Spanish legal scholars and theologians to determine once and for all, quote, how conquests may be conducted justly and with security of conscience, unquote. In April 1550, Charles ordered the debate. Now, the men did not meet face-to-face in a traditional debate. Each stood before the court and made their case. Now, you'd think that by definition, a humanist would argue for human rights. (laughs) Ha-ha! Joke's on you. That is not what the definition of a humanist was in the 16th century. Um... In the 16th century, a humanist was essentially someone who believed in natural explanations for things, and that essentially through science, you could make life better. A humanist was a Renaissance man who wasn't necessarily someone who was fighting for human rights. Sepulveda waged a four-point war against Las Casas' charges. First, the Indians had committed grave sins by their idolatry and sins against nature. Second, the Indians' natural rudeness and inferiority made them natural slaves. Third, military conquest was the most efficient method of converting Indians to Christianity. And fourth, conquering the Indians made it possible for the Spanish to protect the weak amongst them. All right, well, after Sepulveda finished, Las Casas began his defense. His case was simple, though it took him five days to finish up. And what he did was read his history of the Caribbean. In the end, the judges sided with Las Casas, his greatest legal victory. The highest court in Spain agreed that Native Americans were human beings. But even then, Las Casas could not effect significant change to the colonial system. The judges feared controversy, And though they ruled with Las Casas, they refused to render a public decision. And as a result, the abolition of Indian slavery and the encomienda system was slow-walked. As such, Las Casas' end days were not necessarily as happy as they might otherwise have been, I guess. He continued to fight for Indian rights. He believed that God would destroy Spain for its sins. And on the day of his death, July... 1566, he voiced his regret that he did not do more. 
I think Las Casas was great. It wasn't perfect. He was as flawed as anyone. He had the same suggestion that all the other Spanish reformers had, replacing Taino slaves with African slaves, based on the argument that they lived longer. So Las Casas wasn't fighting against slavery's existence. He was against the machine of death, which Spanish colonial policy was, uh, in principle. Um, uh, you know, the encomienda system. Las Casas had experience with slavery outside of the Caribbean. He grew up in Seville, which was Spain's chief seaport, and where there was a sizable percentage of the population of the city was African. Many of them were enslaved Africans. They worked uh, mostly on the ports or as personal servants to the wealthy and in a wide range of various jobs, really. They didn't have an easy life. But slavery in Spain was fundamentally different than slavery in the Caribbean in that the slaves were not being fed into a meat grinder that left them committing mass suicide and starving to death. I mean, there's a big difference. In addition, some Spaniards were of African descent. I mean, what with the hundreds of years of Spain actually being Al-Andalus, uh, a Muslim caliphate, uh, uh, well-connected to the trans-Saharan slave trade. I talk about that extensively in my first series, Rise of the Conquistadors. And, uh, in Las Casas' defense, I mean, African slaves within Spain, so they weren't treated as poorly as slaves, either Indian or African, in the Caribbean. Doesn't mean they were treated well. But to give you an idea of how differently life was for Africans in Spain, or how differently it could be. Las Casas traveled to the New World in 1502 on the fleet of Nicolás de Ovando. On that same fleet was Juan Garrido, a Christianized African conquistador who had become a slave, then later got his freedom in Portugal. I tell you this um, because Las Casas probably didn't understand that within Africa, at the root of the slave trade, there were some of the same goings-on as in the Caribbean, kidnapping, war, all the associated atrocities that go along with enslaving human beings. Las Casas wasn't necessarily against the idea that some people were uh, in servitude and, and, and some people were naturally, should be servants. He was against the idea of what he saw in this Caribbean specifically, and that is genocide. So I say that Las Casas was a great dude in history. I don't know if, say, my niece Ariel, who is African-American, if she She's very young, but if she learned all about Bartolomé de las Casas, I don't know if she would feel the same way about him that I do. I don't know how you feel about him either. And there's a truth about stories anyway. And that is no matter what a storyteller might want you to feel about a story, it's up to the listener how you feel. And I certainly agree that las Casas was perfect. As awe-inspiring as las Casas histories are as well, they aren't they also aren't perfect. Las Casas' work was geared specifically towards the emperor, Charles V, in order to change his mind about the operations of the encomienda. It wasn't a history meant for the consumption of the general public. Because of that, Las Casas wrote history with a binary argument. Good Indians, bad Spaniards. And largely that was true, but that's not the whole story, of course. People are complicated. They do complicated things. This binary character results in an over, oversimplification. So for history's sake, um, 
Las Casas's works are an incredible treasure of information, but they don't provide a complete story, is what I mean to say, I guess. The most obvious example of this is in his descriptions of Mexico, which we didn't talk about in this episode, of course, but uh, where the and that's where the Aztec Empire gave fuel to the opponents of Las Casas. You know, um, the practice of human sacrifice in Tenochtitlan and other Aztec cities genuinely horrified the Spanish and led some to believe that, quote, if God could live in the Indies, so could the devil, unquote. But Las Casas wasn't writing a complete history so that his writers would understand a complete history of the Spanish conquest. He was writing to convince Charles V that he could be a righteous Christian prince who would end the terrible abuses committed in his overseas realms, or he could be a tyrant. In fact, Las Casas repeatedly used the word tyrant to describe colonial officials who were oppressing Indians. But nowhere in Las Casas' histories do any of the native allies of the Spanish conquistadors show up and play a role. And like I, I said earlier, every single one of the Spanish conquests were, that were successful succeeded in part because the Spanish had one or more allied Taino army fighting for them. And, you know, later when we get to Mexico, you'll see that some of the conquests might have been mainly, uh, the main cause might have been the native allies. Anyway, now another major issue people have with Las Casas are the numbers he asserts. Uh, where, where when he talks about how many Taino there were or how many people the Spanish killed or enslaved. Now, Las Casas' works are extensive. Um, and sometimes he would give contradictory calculations for, um, for some of his figures. But his detractors are mainly those who have questioned his overall numbers, and that's not the same thing. Um, you know, there, there's points where he might say the X amount of slaves came from here, and then a different time he might say Y amount of slaves. But um, his overall numbers is what gets the controversy. That's 3 million people on Hispaniola, and that's a big number. But as Bill Donovan says, quote, recent studies have produced estimates that support his description of demographic catastrophe, unquote. Las Casas then emerges as a, if anything, a representation of the statistical imprecision of the early modern period, rather than someone who would be deliberately falsifying evidence. We can't, I think we can blame Las Casas for ignoring the fact that there were plenty of Native Americans who had grudges with other Native Americans and were more than willing decided with Spanish conquistadors to settle old scores. Like I said, life in the Americas wasn't perfect. But, but I don't think we can blame Las Casas for inflating the population of the Caribbean. Now, Las Casas, like his contemporaries, had no idea about the role of European or African diseases um, exactly what they played in decimating the native populations. And, of course, they didn't understand how germs worked. The biological attack that accompanied and in many cases preceded European contact with Native American societies undoubtedly constituted the single most important factor in death, of death in, in the Americas and in the conquest of the hemisphere. Pandemics killed tens of millions of Native Americans. And in this happening, they, the pandemics violently over or led to 
violent overturns of the social and psychological foundations of many native cultures without disease, Europe's conquest of the Americas, if it ever still occurred, would have resembled Britain's occupation of India or the French rule in Indochina. A numerically insignificant ruling class of Europe, ruling class of Europeans, excuse me, ruling, quote, huge, culturally autonomous local populations, unquote. But with that said, to say that pandemics were solely responsible for the destruction of every native society would be playing to the same sort of false binary narrative that people accuse Las Casas of doing. And that's not what this podcast is all about at any rate. And that doesn't explain what happened to the Taino. Because while nobody understood what germs were, I mean, Las Casas and others make it plainly evident that the people of the 16th century weren't a bunch of mouth-breathing knuckle-draggers who didn't understand that forcing slaves to live in overcrowded, unsanitary conditions while overworking them and underfeeding them was a deadly combination. So similarly, I, I don't agree with anyone who would say that Las Casas inflated his numbers because... I don't agree, uh, or excuse me, similarly to how I don't agree with anyone who would say Las Casas inflated his numbers, I don't agree with anyone who says that disease killed the Taino. Las Casas makes it plainly evident. The encomienda killed the Taino. Just like Nazi concentration camps killed people like Anne Frank. Personally, my only real problem with Las Casas' version of history is that the natives are always helpless victims. He's a great example of someone portraying the Native Americans as noble savages. Nowhere in his record are the Indian allies who aid the Spanish conquest. With that said, nowhere in almost any Spanish records um, are the uh, are examples of Indian allies. But there are enough fleeting examples of, of people mentioning caciques bringing armies, <laughs> I mean, that it's clear they played a major role. When we get to the example of the conquest of Mexico, though, we have clear evidence. We have surviving records in Nahuatl, the Aztec language, and that indicate hundreds of thousands of native warriors in armies who hated the Aztecs also aided the Spanish conquest. Anyway, like I said, if we understand that Las Casas wasn't intending to write a history to help the public understand what was going on, but was writing specifically to influence Charles V, I think it makes it a little more understandable that he simplified the morality of his tale. Even as someone like me who loves reading the old chronicles of the past, and I wish his accounts were more complete. Um, But even with that flaw, uh, Las Casas was a pretty good historian and an important chronicler of Spanish atrocities. And on the other hand, his various solutions weren't all that great. Now, he wasn't a revolutionary reformer or anything. He recommended armed Indian resistance at times. But in the end, every Indian army ever assembled was ultimately defeated by European armies. So that probably really wasn't an actual viable option. Native peoples existed in their own societies. They spoke various languages, had their own allies and enemies long before Europeans arrived. 
Many of these ancient enemies were not interested in allying together with to defeat new threats, and so practically everywhere the Spanish octopus ever traveled, they could find people with whom they could attempt to divide and then conquer. This was alongside the diseases of the 16th century that were ravaging these native populations. Now, Las Casas' other big recommendation was the replacement of Indian slavery with African slavery to save the Taino. This resulted in the death of millions more. Las Casas didn't seem to realize that replacing the Taino with Africans wasn't going to do anything to stop the genocide in the Caribbean until very late in his life, after a lot of damage had been done and was going to continue to be done. At that point, he changed his mind and recanted, then again, that wasn't exactly public, like his earlier published works, where he advocated for the switch. So like I said, Las Casas wasn't perfect, but I think he's a great dude in history. He saw a, a fucked up world. He wanted to make it better. He was concerned that individual conquistadors were not being held to account for their actions. He believed that the conquistadors needed more external restraint from the king. He saw the encomienda system as inherently evil, but his anger and fury was directed at the colonists. It was never at the king or Spain or, or, or greater Christendom. Las Casas, for example, you know, he never came up with the idea that, say, the Indians just be left alone. Las Casas fervently believed that the Indians could not be left alone. They had to be exposed to the grace of God and integrated into Christian society. So as great a dude as Las Casas was, he also exposes to me the basic inherent problem with a colonized society. Like, so with all that said, I still do believe, though, that Bartolomé de Las Casas is a great dude of history because what he wrote was important and it was timeless. Subjects like children being fed to dogs are atrocities that seem in line with modern history to me as anything else. Civilized man has firebombed civilian targets, committed the Holocaust, sent millions to gulags, and amongst numerous other tragedies. Today in the 21st century, here in the 21st century, we use flying robots to kill people. What Las Casas argues against is as valid today as when he wrote it. Las Casas isn't a great dude of history just because he describes the atrocities committed by a single Spanish regime in the 16th century, but also because he forces us to ponder important questions. How should you react to monstrous injustice? In the United States, there are still, as per the president's orders, children in cages. Some not huge numbers, but some children have died of diseases in those cages. Some of the same diseases the Taino were killed of. What if the people are far away? Las Casas forces us to ponder. What if the people are nothing like you at all? Civilians in Hong Kong are fighting for their lives, for their freedoms against an oppressive Chinese state. What does that matter to us? Las Casas forces us to ask. 
he makes us wonder what our responsibility is. As the inheritors of a tragic past, and as citizens of a sometimes tragic present. What is our responsibility as the heirs of Columbus? Is it to speak out and work towards ending oppression? I don't know the answers to all of those questions. I, I hope that we can end these sorts of things. One thing I do know is that regarding the genocide of the Taino, historically, the decision has been made to minimize, ignore, justify, otherwise not properly deal with the beginnings of the conquest of the Americas. Now, I have chosen in this podcast to instead deal with that tragedy by laying it out as well as I can, because I believe we ought to know the true history of the Americas. And because I have often heard the argument against assigning culpability to the conquistadors that we cannot judge people by the standards of our day. Las Casas certainly wasn't judging people by the standards of the 21st century, but he does reveal the true nature of the conquest of the Americas, a systematic genocide. Ironically, Spain's enemies, Portugal, France, England, and the Dutch, all used Las Casas' work to create something, what the so-called black legend of Spain, something basically used to create, to justify their own colonial efforts, mainly by pointing to Las Casas' work and saying, look at all the atrocities that the Spanish committed in order to defend their own colonial enterprises. Ironically, there is no equivalent, though, to Las Casas that exists within Portuguese, French, British, or Dutch literature or history. As this show continues, I'm going to do my best to document ways in which these other colonial empires were similar to the Spanish as well as the ways that they differed. just going to try and do my best to tell you the history. I'm of the opinion also, though, that the Spanish conquistadors have served in some ways at the point of deflection um, against um, what, you know, other Europeans did and, 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 and other Spaniards who weren't the conquistadors did. Um, anyway, next episode, Las Casas is going to continue to be handy to us as we talk about the early Spanish mainland and in Venezuela, where, it, you know, in particular, where a, a German company were the tyrants. Anyway, Las Casas has left us a record and for that, and for being a man of conscience, I consider him a great dude of history. He was flawed, and in fact, a conquistador himself. But for fuck's sake, I think there's some room in this world for an amount of redemption. Can't answer you if you're asking me if there's some fine line where you cross if you don't get redeemed. Las Casas participated in atrocities. I can't tell you he even deserves a bit of redemption let alone the amount I am willing to give him. But hell, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't know that any of us ever deserves anything that we get, good or bad. Sometimes we just get what we get. But I do know that what Bartolomé de las Casas did was important. It was admirable to, admirable to me. And I know that forgiveness is one of the chief things that makes us human. Now for this, I believe he is worthy of your consideration. 
But for now, let us continue, because Bartolome de las Casas is important to this episode and worthy of an aside. But this episode is not about Bartolome de las Casas. It is about the Taino and the Spanish octopus, so let us continue. Now, while he was alive, King Ferdinand occasionally showed concern for the fate of the Taino. But far more important to him was that Hispaniola produced more gold, and that was a process that depended entirely on forced native labor. So while Ferdinand on the one hand instructed his conquistadors to treat the caciques well and to do whatever they could to make sure that nobody stole all the Indians' belongings and that good care should be made sure to, that the Indians don't keep dying, on the other hand, Ferdinand also instructed his governors to put more native laborers to work in the mines, that more native laborers should be brought from other islands so that they could work in the mines, and that under no circumstances should, at any time, fewer than one-third of the natives in service of the Spanish be working in the mines at any given time. Also, one final thing. Make sure the revenue from the mines keeps increasing. Basically, what can we, we can make of Ferdinand's position on what the job of governors like Nicolas de Ovando and Diego Columbus was, was that gold was more important than treating the natives well or even fairly. The overriding objective of Spanish empire was to secure more gold, and this was understood from top to bottom of the entire enterprise. Not every Spaniard and not every Christian saw the world in this way, of course, it's just that very few, very, very few decent people ever went to the Caribbean. Las Casas, of course, is one exception, albeit one who changed his mind about what he was doing after he'd come to be a conquistador. But there were others. In 1510, the first Dominican friars arrived in Hispaniola, and they were quickly horrified by what they saw. Perhaps the first Spanish protest against what was going on was by these Dominicans, one of whom, named Fray Antonio de Montesino, preached a fiery sermon on the last Sunday of Advent in 1511. His congregation included, contained the governor, numerous other officials, and various high-ranking citizens of Santo Domingo. Montesino declared they were living in mortal sin because of their treatment of the Indians. The colonists responded by sending correspondents to Spain, asking that the Dominicans be removed from the island. So, the Dominican friars sent Montesino to the Spanish court to argue the case for the Taino. Montesino received the barest reception back in Spain, but he was never silenced, and eventually he was aided by others, most importantly Las Casas in 1515. But, like I said, nothing ultimately changed. King Ferdinand admitted gold, and in practice, that meant exploiting the Tainos to get it. It wasn't until after he died in 1516 that reform was ever possible. Las Casas himself had been awarded an encomienda for his participation in the conquest of Cuba, and he used this experience to argue against specific ways in which the encomienda functioned. He made a very good argument that he was able to boil down in three specific causes. Quote, For all the woes and deaths of these Indians... First, excessive work. Second, lack of provisions and food. Third, discontent with their work and despair of its never ending. If these are not examined, it will be appreciated that they are not enough only to kill physically weak Indians, but strong giants, unquote. With that sort of condemnation, it's hard to say that the Spanish didn't understand 
that what they were doing is wrong. Hispaniola's economy under Diego Columbus and Pasamonte fell apart because gold became more and more scarce. The gold in Puerto Rico was quickly exhausted as well, and Cuba's gold supply lasted little longer. The gold of the Caribbean was found in only a few districts on the islands. The deposits were small and slight depth. On Hispaniola and on Puerto Rico, the Spanish immediately learned where the gold was from the Tainos. On Cuba, the Spaniards found the gold themselves by searching stream beds, which was the only reason why gold mines were in operation later in time on Cuba than elsewhere. All in all, the largest and richest gold mines on Hispaniola were worked for about 25 years. Those of Puerto Rico and Cuba, about half as long. Afterwards, Cuba, excuse me, gold was never again an important part of Caribbean life. Spaniards oversaw Taino laborers as they dug into sand and gravel to search for gold, as well as perform other heavy labor about the mining camps. The most productive spots were filled year after year with shallow pits, some still visible in places today. As the Caribbean was increasingly squeezed of wealth, the men who came to the Caribbean increasingly left to go elsewhere, to other islands in the Caribbean, to the mainland of the Americas. Nicolas de Ovando attempted to encourage families to come to Hispaniola and had some success in stabilizing the Spanish population there by building villas for the settlers and then forbidding them to depart to other islands. But by the end of his governorship in 1509, he finally relented and permitted Ponce de Leon to colonize Puerto Rico, by which time King Ferdinand sent new colonial ventures, headed by Nisueza and Ojeda, to occupy Tierra Firme as well. The next decade, from 1510 to 1520, large and continuing emigration happened out of Hispaniola, first to Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and Darien, later to Cuba, following the conquest of Velazquez. And as a result, parts of Hispaniola became virtually deserted. Basically, if you were a dissatisfied adventurer living on the island, you left to go somewhere else in the New World to attempt to acquire the title of conquistador. Even after 1520, men sometimes still continued to leave Hispaniola for other parts. In 1514, a new repartimiento was ordered by Spasamonte, which was a scandal on Hispaniola, uh, as a brief aside, because it made bare the fact that it was he, the royal treasurer, and not the governor, Columbus, who was really in power. The repartimiento of the native labor revealed how dramatically the Taino population had decreased. But it's also useful to us because it gives a tiny glimpse into life on the island of this time. We have the list of the repartimiento, and while it's not a census of the Spanish like it is for native labor, it, since it only shows us the Spaniards who received native slaves, it also gives us some information about them in occupation and a marital status. It's probably safe to say that the influx of friars had some effect on moderating Spanish conduct because roughly a third of the married men listed in the repartimiento were married not to a Spanish wife, but to an indigenous Taino woman. Few, if any, Taino women were, you know, truly willing wives of Spanish conquistadors, what with the dramatic power imbalance, but this nevertheless indicates that there were Spanish friars who sparked some sense of morality amongst the, some of the conquistadors, however small their consciences might have been, 
At any rate, the Repartimiento of 1514 is the first record of intermarriage in the New World, and these families went on to produce mestizo offspring. And in effect, these children were becoming the founding fathers and mothers of a permanent colony, the first Latin Americans. Quoting Marshall Eakin, quote, at its core, the history of Latin America for the past 500 years has been a story of miscegenation, so that today this racial and cultural mixture defines most of Latin America, unquote. The beginnings of this new society were being built out of the failure of the gold economy. One of the 15 towns on Hispaniola was abandoned by 1514, Santa Cruz. Most of the citizens had followed Juan Ponce de Leon to Puerto Rico. Those who remained dispersed to other villas on the island. By 1517, basically every settlement on Hispaniola was little more than 20 or 30 Spanish households, quote, like poor villages in Spain, unquote, according to one observer, with the notable exception of Santo Domingo, the capital of Hispaniola, which continued to maintain a healthy size and population. By 1520, several more of Ovando's vias dissolved, and several more moved away from husked-out gold-mining districts. By that time, most Spaniards lived by the coast, the central region of Hispaniola, where gold was discovered, and which was the hub of Spanish cruelty and Taino misery for nearly, oh gosh, almost three decades. It was now a ghost town. In 1509, the census of Tainos was 60,000. 60, in 1510, Diego Columbus reported a census of 40,000, though most of those estimates probably only refer to working-age Tainos. In 1514, the new Repartimiento showed there were only 22,762 Tainos, excluding children and the aged. We don't have a population estimate for the Taino children at any point in time, from any of the estimates, except from the 1514 Repartimentio for the royal estates at Santo Domingo. There were four royal estates at Santo Domingo in 1514. In none of them was there anything close to an average of one child per family, and of the four royal estates, only one even achieved an average of one child per two Taino families. Peter Martyr wrote in 1514, quote, Many say that once upon a time, a census was made of more than 1,200,000. How many there be today gives me horror to say, unquote. In January 1518, a Spanish official reported that of the 1,130,000 on Hispaniola, there were now 11,000. And in three or four years, none would remain. But I think, to me, the most stunning report of any Spanish official of the Taino population on Hispaniola was from a man named Pedro de Cordoba, a Franciscan friar who wrote to Ferdinand on May 28, 1517, quote, As a result of the sufferings and hard labor they endured, the Indians choose and have chosen suicide. Occasionally, a hundred at a time have committed mass suicide. The women, exhausted by labor, have shunned conception and childbirth, so that work should not be heaped on them during pregnancy or after delivery. 
Many, when pregnant, have taken something to abort. Others, after delivery, have killed their children with their own hands so as to not place or leave them in such oppressive slavery. These poor people no longer increase or multiply, nor do they bear children, which is a matter of great sorrow." Unquote. The contemporary Spanish experts who studied the problem differed on the specifics, but they were all in basic agreement. Spain was at fault, and Spanish men, Spanish policies, were conducting a genocide. They, of course, did not use the word genocide. It was not invented yet. Neither did they have the benefit of germ theory to help explain the casualties. Specifically, however, major blame was placed on the transfer of Tainos from place to place as a result of repeated repartimientos, where land and slaves were repartitioned amongst the Spanish. From the forced migrations that so many undertook to and fro the mines from the beginning and end of the demora as well, you know, the, eight, the six to eight month period of work that they endured, you know, the Tainos suffered from being changed from one place to another. Secondly, they suffered from that same cause because since they were removed around, the Spanish encomenderos did not know for certain how long Indians would be at their disposal before a new repartimiento could reshuffle the workforce at any time. Thus, the conquistadors were incentivized not to look after their charges properly. The plain and simple truth of this means that the encomienda system as first implemented by Columbus um, and then continued and expanded by Ovando uh, and, and beyond, it, that it was an even more brutal system than chattel slavery. Beyond the concerns about the constant reshuffling of Taino labor, the critics of Spanish colonial policy realized that while the first importance of Hispaniola was to produce and ship as much gold as was possible, I mean, tremendous investment had been made in getting the mines operational, keeping the colony well supplied. On the contrary, nothing, no money was spent, no concern was given to Taino health. There were no sanitation structures built in the mining camps. Very little rest was given to Taino slaves. They received a poor diet at best and were starved at worst. The Spanish also understood that part of the trouble for the Taino stemmed from the fact that they had stopped them from hunting and fishing and fed them nothing but practically nothing but cassava bread. Now, cassava is nutritious, but is not a balanced diet. And on Hispaniola, meat and fat was restricted to the Spanish masters. Spanish didn't understand nutrition like we do, of course. But the fact that many impoverished Spaniards suffered from chronic malnutrition isn't an indicator that the Spanish didn't understand nutrition at all. I think rather that's an indication that the Spanish reproduced on Hispaniola some of the worst parts of their society into the Caribbean. At any rate, the Spanish sources make it clear that they understood nutrition well enough that they realized a balanced, varied diet was good, eating only bread was bad, and that by disrupting Taino life and keeping them from hunting and fishing, they had done something that was very, very bad for the Taino. Similarly to nutrition, 
the Spanish did not understand germ theory, but they understood disease well enough that these factors were related to disease and that they were killing the Taino. But in the grand scheme of Spanish imperial policy, Taino lives were insignificant in comparison to obtaining gold. Carl Ortwin Sauer states simply, quote, different reasons were given for the dying off of the natives, and probably all of them were true, unquote. One critic stated that because of the constant shifting of the Taino workforce, quote, they have died in infinite numbers, unquote. Las Casas stressed the heartlessness of Spanish officials and the brutality of individual masters. In his own words, the Spanish were guilty of, quote, cruelties more atrocious and unnatural than any recorded of untutored and savage barbarians. No other reason can be assigned for them than the greed and thirst for gold of our countrymen, unquote. Las Casas used his Historia de las Indies and his devastation of the Indies to single out specific conquistadors and colonial officials for specific deeds, he general, as well as generally critiquing the encomienda system as a whole. He summed up the colonial system and its effect on the Taino, quote, it would be just as well to throw the Indians on the horns of wild bulls or fling them to hungry wolves, lions, and tigers, unquote. Taino social structure had completely collapsed by the 1520s. By that time, all the highest-ranking caciques were killed. The subordinate caciques were either enslaved, killed, or reduced to the status of overseers. By the 1520s, there were no more dances and songs and histories, no more arietos. In 28 years, the Spaniards destroyed, quote, a well-structured and adjusted native society, unquote, in the words of Carl Ortwin Sauer, replacing it with, quote, a formless proletariat in alien servitude, its customary habits and enjoyments lost, the will to live and reproduce weakened. One way out was to commit suicide by the juice of the bitter yucca, unquote. The repartimiento of 1514 showed that reproduction amongst the Taino was ceasing, and the Spanish were well aware that, too, that they were dying of other causes, and overwork and disease. But old world disease did do a lot of work. Europeans brought numerous contagions to the Americas, in particular the Aedes aegypti mosquito, introduced from southern Europe, um, is a species of mosquito that carries malaria and yellow fever. The Aedes aegypti found a perfect home in the vast tropical and subtropical regions of the Americas. Both of those diseases actually moved ahead of Spanish colonialism in many cases. In parts of Central America and Brazil, diseases were impacting the Native American populations well before they even met Europeans. But with that said, I can't help but mention the fact that disease, or not, the human population of the Americas would have rebounded from those diseases, just the way they did in the old world, except that they also faced constant enslavement. And I literally mean a worse sort of enslavement than any other kind of enslavement that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Not all the diseases that killed the malnourished Taino were even foreign. Many died of intestinal infections, like typhoid and tuberculosis, like I spoke of earlier. 
This was the natural result of the Spanish policy of moving entire villages from place to place, which put the Taino at risk of disease from the constant changes in air and water. The mining camps were filled with these work gangs who were herded together in close quarters without sanitation for months. Then the survivors were returned, with whatever germs they had, back to their various places of living. These are conditions highly suited to infection. Along with improper diet, overwork, and the dispirit, and the dis- to the loss of way of life, the depression from that, what you had was a system where different populations, each with their own germs, were all brought together, forced close together, and those different germs were then dispersed over the entire Taino population. At the end of the Demoras, I mean, you just had all sorts of sicknesses, probably going back to the villages. All, anyway, all in all, the Spanish predictions that the Taino would be extinct in the 1520s was largely true on Hispaniola, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. By that time, only tiny remnants of an entire civilization had survived in a few mountain refuges. It wasn't until after the death of King Ferdinand King in 1516 that complaints of people like Las Casas and the Dominican friars received any real attention at all in the halls of Spanish power. Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter and queen, Queen Juana, was mad, hence her nickname through history, Queen Juana the Mad. Her son, the future King Charles V, was a small child, and so most power in the government resided in the hands of a Cardinal Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros, who was Charles' uh, guardian. Cisneros was a capable administrator, and importantly, he had no financial interests in the Caribbean. So he sent a colonial official uh, the, called the Lysandiado Zusau, and in, as an observer, with uh, he was had full judicial powers uh, to Hispaniola. Zusau arrived in 1517, along with a trio of Heronomite monks who were tasked with making reports and recommendations for change on the colony. By January 1518, it was determined to resettle all Indians into pueblos of four or five hundred persons, old and young. And these pueblos would be allowed to plant their own crops and generally be left alone. After initial opposition, Zuazo's orders were accepted in the Spanish villas. A year later, the natives were resettled once more, finally back to controlling their own lives. The Spanish reforms are another implicit admission of guilt. They were also a last-ditch attempt to prevent what Spanish conquistadors and Spanish colonial policies had wrought, the total destruction of the Taino. Thirty villages were built. They were given to the Taino and other Indian slaves in the Caribbean. To be frank, very few of these people had originally come from Hispaniola. By this point, nearly every Indian slave on Hispaniola had been captured elsewhere. Uh, Many of them were Taino from Puerto Rico and Cuba and Jamaica, etc. But the Taino villages all had, uh, anyway, the Taino villages all had their own hunting and fishing grounds. Only at this last hour was it finally, you know, accepted by the highest Spanish authorities that the only way for the Taino was to survive was just to let them survive. They just had to be free from servitude and allowed to live their own way. It was too little too late. On January 10th, 1519, 
Spanish colonial authorities reported that smallpox had made its first appearance on Hispaniola. There were a number of deadly contagions brought to the Americas. Some of these were wreaking havoc on American populations already. And I've detailed here, perhaps worse than those were, for the Taino specifically anyway, were the endemic diseases caused by poor nutrition and even worse sanitation in the mining camps in the Caribbean that were run by Spanish landlords. And it's difficult for me to state just how dangerous smallpox can be it is a disease that has thankfully been seemingly eradicated. We do not really see it in the 21st century. Smallpox originally, it originated originally, I think, in India, sometime in the far past, um, at least as far back as 15 years, 1,500 years ago, if not longer, spread through Asia, Africa, and Europe. And through century after century, the people of the old world developed genetic resistances to smallpox. Even still, for those predisposed to survive the disease, the mortality rate of those infected with smallpox from, say, Europe or Asia or Africa is something like 50% for the two most common variations of the disease. Technically, there are four, and one of them is 90% deadly amongst old world populations. So if the strain of smallpox hit America... If that strain uh, would have hit a population of Amer Americans, um, I mean, the number who survived would have been so low as to be statistically insignificant. But at any rate, children and the elderly are particularly at risk from smallpox. So this disease is capable uh, of both killing those in a society who have the most to teach and those who have the most to learn. On January 10th, 1519, it was reported that a third of the surviving Indians on Hispaniola were dead of smallpox. On May 20th, 1519, officials made another report several months later. By that time, the majority of the surviving Taino, the precious few thousands who had survived nearly three decades of genocidal slaughter at the hands of the Spanish, were now nearly all dead of pestilence. All in all, this was the first major epidemic in the New World. Many more would follow. From 1520 to 1600, no fewer than 14 major epidemics occurred in Mesoamerica, no fewer than 17 in the Andes. The result of this is that entire societies collapsed in the second half of the 16th century. Many of them reorganized themselves. The Americas were changed forever because of the introduction of various diseases, smallpox, measles, malaria, probably the worst as far as numbers of people killed, I, if I had to guess. But anyway, these horrible epidemics, though, they didn't really begin until about 30 years after the arrival of Europeans. It was after the time at which the Taino had been reduced to a fraction of their original numbers. Their destruction can't be blamed primarily by disease but instead by colonial policy of the Spanish. And I think we can commend the Spaniards of the 16th century who worked to save the Taino, who denounced the actions of evil men like Las Casas, as well as those who saw problems with Spanish colonial policy, people who worked to reform a system, even if what little success of their efforts came too little too late. I think we should also note, though, that these reformers were still part of a Spanish empire, that their ideas on how to save the Taino from oblivion didn't 
simply include leaving the Spanish colonies in the New World to financial ruin. The simple fact of the matter is that no matter how anyone inside of Spain's empire might have felt about the Taino, there wasn't really any feasible way for changes to occur in the system without new colonial policies. Spanish reformers urged the end of the gold trade, which wasn't ended because they succeeded as much as it was because the gold ran out. And their suggestion that the gold mining landlord should raise wheat, produce wine, have pastures for livestock, and plant other crops, um, I mean, that was the main suggestion. Quote, Las Casas wrote, quote, seeing that as they were running out of Indians, the Spaniards began to abandon the mines, for they had nobody to send there to die and to look for new sources of profit, unquote. And many of the crops, especially the wheat, didn't do so well, but one did. One crop did especially well. That crop was sugar. Now, we live in an age of information, so much so that we have information overload. We have to worry about misinformation, or worse, disinformation, to me and you and everybody else in the 21st century. But we have these problems, but we also have the ability to learn almost anything. I mean, really, truly. It's a matter of time and effort to know something. But even still, we understand perfectly well how easy it is to be misinformed about a subject. In the 16th century, it was not possible to learn almost anything whenever you felt like it. But it was still very much possible to be misinformed about a subject. So with that said, some of the Spanish reformers really only were seeking reform solely for the economic purposes. Like, they, they just wanted money, and the gold was running out, and they, so they knew there was a change needed to come. And so the transference of Taino and Carib slaves to African slaves this wasn't really a difficult reform to push for, given that argument. Uh, if the Spanish reformers were concerned about reforming the economic basis for Hispaniola, then switching to a more available source of labor was an easy decision. Some of the reformers, you know, uh, had gone to Hispaniola like Las Casas, you know, I mean, he was a fucking conquistador. And this wasn't an age of information, infinite information. The African slave trade was controlled by Portugal. And as such, it was subject to the same sorts of propaganda and disinformation that the Spain was putting about how the Americas operate. I mean, that's why Las Casas went out there. He didn't go out there to murder people. He went out there to spread Christianity. There's a terrible irony and that some of the men who called for reform in the Spanish system because of its brutality against human beings also called for reform by beginning a new kind of slave trade, one that originated in Africa instead of the now depopulated Caribbean. African slavery was long known in Europe. Look, I, like I said, my first series, Rise of the Conquistadors, talks all about it. So if you haven't listened to it, please do. But the Spanish didn't control it. Some Spanish conquistadors went to Africa illegally to purchase or raid slaves, but the African slave trade was legally controlled by Portugal, according to papal decree. The Treaty of Tordesillas didn't, in fact, prevent all foreign shipping from traveling to Africa, but it certainly did suppress it. And it helped the Portuguese crown create an official narrative about what the African slave trade was. And to be clear, the Portuguese were engaged in saving souls from heathen Africa and the infidel Muslims who resided there. Africans loved getting on ships to become Christians, and the Portuguese slave trader with the boat was sure to tell you, the load of human beings he had for sale, these slaves, these African slaves, they were far hardier, more hardworking, and they lived longer than the Taino. It's a win-win. 
Africans were always with the Spanish in the Americas. Columbus himself, long involved with the Portuguese-African trade, brought an African slave with him as his personal servant on all of his voyages. We don't know his name. Black conquistadors, like I said, also went to the Caribbean. There were numerous African freedmen from the poor city of Seville who signed up to go to the Caribbean as conquistadors or as auxiliaries. The most well-known, like I said, is Juan Garrido, Handsome John in English. Garrido was born in Congo. As a young man was taken to Portugal, converted to Christianity, and changed his name. That's where he got the name Juan Garrido. He went to Hispaniola in 1502 on Ovando's voyage. He later participated in the conquest of Puerto Rico and Cuba. After that, he went on with Cortez to Mexico. He participated in the siege of Tenochtitlan and eventually settled as a wheat farmer near Mexico City, more successful end than most, perhaps, especially for conquistadors who engaged in that many entradas. The conquest of the Americas has the feel to us living in the present as an inevitable thing. That doesn't mean individual conquistadors got to achieve all the glory and riches they sought. Men died. I mean, when you live your it, life, you know, get rich or die trying. It turns out a lot of people die like that. Anyway, uh, Ovando also brought African slaves for use in the mines. King Ferdinand referred to a shipment of 17 Africans in 1505, adding that he needed 100 more so that all of these could be getting gold for me. The Hieronymite monk reformers sent by Cisneros asked for license to bring slaves directly from Africa to Puerto Rico in 1517, and other Spanish officials soon seconded this idea, proposing that slaves would be brought from Cape Verde, a Portuguese colony, and were to be placed in villages and live in marriage. But slavery wasn't an immediate cure-all for the Spanish Caribbean, and in fact ultimately led to further financial ruin for many of the settlers and residents. The city of San Juan, Puerto Rico, reported that by 1533, quote, all the settlers and residents are heavily in debt, to the large number of Negroes they bought on credit in hope of mining much gold. Since they have not found any gold, many are in prison. Others have taken to the woods, and others have been ruined by being forced to sell everything they own, unquote. Now that is a pretty chaotic climate, and I mean, that says nothing of how unhappy the slaves were with this situation. Regardless of what the Spanish actually believed, though, about how willing slaves were from Africa to be enslaved by Christian masters in the Caribbean, the reality, of course, was that the enslaved Africans did everything they could to resist their status. This could come in all sorts of ways. Some of them were very mild. Oviedo reported that African slaves, quote, acquired the habit of tobacco. They say that when they stop work and smoke tobacco, it takes away their weariness, unquote. Resistance could also be much more active than taking a smoke break. The Laciando Zuzao stated, quote, On my arrival, I found that some Negroes were engaged in robberies. Others had a runaway to the mountain. So I ordered them whipped, and others have had their ears clipped, and there has been no more trouble, unquote. So, you know, not very happy-sounding. Regardless of whatever potential trouble could arise from owning slaves, the Spanish found slave labor necessary to the success of Hispaniola. Spain's Casa de Contratación improved the importation of 4,000 slaves in 1517, and that's the house of trade that, that uh, was based in Seville. And by the next year, a mass importation of Africans was underway. The island economy shifted from gold to agriculture. 
Oviedo noted the speed of the growth of the African slave trade, writing, quote, as a result of the sugar factories, the land seems an effigy of Ethiopia itself, unquote. The, brutali the brutality of the African slave trade would last for centuries more, of course. The end of one genocide led directly into another, helped right along by well-meaning Spanish reformers as gold mines were replaced by sugar plantations. And so the Caribbean became transformed into what one historian, Vincent Brown, I didn't really use the book in this, but I remember the title of it. He called it The Reaper's Garden. As for the sugar itself, it was first introduced by Columbus. That experiment failed, a casualty of the starving time, where even the dogs and horses were eaten. Oviedo credited the doctor at Santo Domingo, Gonzalo de Velosa, for reintroducing it. Quote, at his own cost, brought sugar masters to this island and bought a trapiche, the first on this island, on the banks of the Rio Nigua, and, and introduced the technicians and art from the Canary Islands, unquote. A trapiche, just so you know, is a horse-powered mill. The horse powers the metal cylinders, which act like steamrollers, which would crush the cane sugar, or the sugar cane as it passed between the cylinders. The sugar masters were Genoans, Genoese from the Canaries, who had already developed a booming sugar industry, first at Madeira, on the Canary Islands, and now finally Hispaniola. Ferdinand tasted some of the first sugar from this plantation on his deathbed, and before long, the sugar market was getting larger and larger back in Europe. Still, just as quickly as it started, and as phenomenal as the early growth of the sugar industry was in the Caribbean, that growth began to slow for some time, because gold was discovered again, first in Mexico, and then in Peru. And most of the enthusiasm and investment in colonial ventures in South uh, excuse me, in Spanish America, uh, was focused once again on all that glittered. I tell you this because in the long run, it kind of explains how the British, Dutch, and French found room to muscle in on the Caribbean. But at any rate, sugar plantations were very expensive things to operate. Producing sugar is truly an industrial enterprise as much as it is an agricultural one. A sugar plantation requires a mill complete with copper boilers and other equipment that was considered state-of-the-art technology at the time. The word for this equipment it was ingenio, engine in English, and the ingenio, according to Oviedo, requires, quote, requires an investment of 10 or 12,000 gold ducats before it is complete and ready for operation, and I should say, and if I should say 15,000 ducats, I should not be exaggerating for they require at least 80 or 100 Negroes working all the time, and even 120 or more to be well supplied, and close by a good herd or two or three uh, of two or three thousand head of cattle to feed the workers, aside from the expense of trained workers and foremen for making the sugar, and carts to haul the cane to the mill and to bring in wood, and people to make bread and cultivate and irrigate the cane fields and other things that must be done and continual expenditure of money, unquote. Sugar was only a business for the wealthy, but for those who could afford it and had access to well-wooded and well-watered land, Oviedo continues, quote, It is a fact that the owner of an unencumbered 
and well-equipped ingenio has a fine and rich property, and one that brings in great profit and return to its owner." Unquote. Oviedo stated that the Laciando Zuzao and his wife owned a sugar plantation with an annual income of 6,000 gold ducats. So we're talking about something that would pay for itself in less than three years. Other Spanish officials, wealthy conquistadors, and others owned the ingenios. Some of them were owned by Genoese. One was half-owned by a German company. Anyway, the discovery of gold on, uh, in America came from exploration based out of Cuba. Hispaniola, without gold, was rapidly losing importance in the colonial system. Governor Velasquez of Cuba, technically under the authority of Santo Domingo, but he was basically did what he damn well pleased as long as he also kept in the good graces of the Spanish crown. And what Velasquez pleased was basically to plant himself at one end of the island at his capital at Santiago on the eastern side and not explore, to live a sedentary life and basically obtain no more first-hand knowledge of what was happening on Cuba's western side. Sauer says of Velasquez, quote, he is not the stuff of which explorers are made, unquote. So it wasn't even Velasquez doing any discovering, but rather the loose control he had in general ignorance of what other conquistadors were up to on Cuba's western side is what gave them the freedom to go on their own voyages. The Spaniards probably learned that great wealth existed in Mexico from seafaring Maya traders. At any rate, Velázquez wrote to Ferdinand in April 1514 that Indians had come on canoes from lands unknown to the Spanish. Likely, the island was visited by Maya seafarers, and by 1515, ships were leaving Cuba on slave raids to the Yucatan to attempt to replace the Cuban Tainos, who were busy being worked to death, of course. At first, the Spanish believed the Yucatan was just another island, but ultimately, an entrada led by a conquistador named for Francisco Hernández de Cordoba revealed that the Yucatán was a much larger place, and a very wealthy place, with lots of gold. Obviously, the story of Francisco Hernández is one I'm going to save for our next episode, which is all about the conquistadors who went to the early Spanish mainland, and how eventually Balboa discovered the Pacific Ocean, but I mention all of this here to show why it is that the sugar industry got started so quickly, and then promptly stopped developing. It took a lot of capital investment to build a sugar plantation, and soon after Spanish capital began flowing into this, more gold was discovered. For now, I think that means this is a good time to start winding this episode down finally. <laughs> At any rate, I think I've done a pretty good job describing what I would call the Spanish octopus, so let's bring our focus back on the Taino, who were not in the end, helped much by the reforms of Cisneros, what with the smallpox, and upon examining the historical sources, to me it's clear that the Spanish colonial policy, like I said, resulted in the genocide, not the introduction of disease. Untold, thousands of Tainos died of diseases that had nothing to do with any old world germs and had a lot more to do with the Spanish decision to build overcrowded mining camps without sanitation. A large chunk of this episode kind of chronicled the actions of those responsible for those atrocities. But, and, and like I said, Hispaniola was a place where a lot of the worst people in history got their start. Nicolas de Ovando had a collection 
of human ears, for Christ's sakes. But that still leaves us with one last question. Why, I think? How? I mean, sure, we understand why Ovando was out there. He liked killing people and collecting their ears and getting rich for doing it. But many people back in Spain found this disgusting and morally reprehensible, or at least they would have. The issue back in Spain was clouded because there are, just as there are today, there were propagandists in the 1500s. The Fray Thomas Ortiz spoke before the Council of Indies in 1512 to defend the imperial system. Whatever atrocities the Spanish committed were deserving, according to Ortiz. Here's a few quotes from his speech. Quote, they ate human flesh. They were addicted to it more than any race of men. They had no system of justice. They were like stupid asses, half-witted and without feeling. They are arrogant, thieves, liars, and of little intelligence. They were sorcerers, fortune-tellers, and necromancers. In short, God never created a people more steeped in vice and bestiality, unquote. I think Ortiz must have been a pretty disgusting human being. I mean, to order this sort of nonsense doesn't necessarily make you as low down a person as someone like Ovando, who would kill and torture and enslave you and put your ears in his ear collection, but it is still pretty fucking low. Juan Guinez de Sepulveda, the opponent of Las Casas, went even farther than Ortiz. In Sepulveda's opinion, he wasn't even sure that Native Americans were created by God. Quoting Sepulveda, quote, They are as different from Spaniards as cruel people are from mild people as monkeys from men. How can we doubt that these people, so uncivilized, so barbaric, contaminated, have been justly conquered? Unquote. These sorts of arguments aren't so different than the sorts of arguments propagandists make today when they argue that people somewhere else in the world aren't good people. But it wasn't Sepulveda who won that debate, it was Las Casas. And the arguments of Bartolomé de Las Casas can be summed up quite nicely into one simple, elegant phrase. It's one that you, perhaps you might even find useful to know. But first, I think you might also find it to know that one of Sepulveda's fellow propagandists, Antonio de Cosueco, on his deathbed, took back everything he said about the Taino. Casuego argued that, quote, the Indians were beasts, that they had sinned, that God had condemned them, and that they would all perish, unquote. But upon death's door, upon reflecting upon his sins, Casuego changed his tombs in hopes of forgiveness. The dying propagandist admitted he was wrong and regretted the, quote, great scandal that may have resulted, unquote, from his words. And so he took some responsibility for the, quote, more evils and injury on the Indians, unquote, which had occurred due to his false testimony before the Council of Indies. Now, last episode, at the end of last episode, I made a bold claim that a conspiracy of sorts exists. We are still in the historical roots of the conquest of the Americas in this uh, episode, at the end of this episode, and you might think I'm a little bonkers for saying that there's a conspiracy that exists in this world, and that might be true. But regardless, the conspiracy I speak of is that the conquest of the Americas continues. It continues on to this very day. 
The purpose of this podcast is for me to tell a great historical tale. I think the greatest historical tale ever told. So you don't have to believe me. Just because I say there's a conspiracy that there is one. But if you were to learn that the largest Native American nation within the United States, the Navajo Nation, is littered with abandoned uranium mines, which were worked by the Navajo, and which continue to poison the people who were forced to mine for the uranium, essentially, from 1944 to 1986, I would, report to you, I would reply to you that, of course, it does, that those mines litter the Navajo Nation. Because the conquest of the Americas continues to this day. And if you were to learn that those Navajo peoples, heroes of World War II, if you'll recall various movies, that many of them lack access to electricity, that roughly 15,000 Navajo homes have no electricity, which is 75% of the total homes without electricity within the United States, I would tell you that does not surprise me. The conquest of the Americas continues. If you stretch shock to me that Lakota people who live on the Standing Rock Reservation in South Dakota are to this day fighting against oil companies hell-bent on destroying Lakota land on their way to making a few bucks, whether or not it's even legal for those oil companies to do so, I would laugh. I'd say, yes, of course. Because the conquest of the Americas continues to this very day. Now, of course, the conquest of the Americas was always an international adventure. It remains so to this day. If you were to learn that the native tribes of the Amazon continue to this day fighting literally in a life-and-death struggle to hold on to their lives and their land from the greediest of logging and agricultural conglomerates on this planet who would literally rather choke on the smoke from purposefully setting the forest on fire, from choking their own children on that smoke in hopes of making future profit. They would rather do that than not destroy people's homes to say nothing of the environment. If you're wondering about that, I would tell you then by all means, join the fight and help. I would also tell you that the conquest of the Americas continues to this day. Yes, the conquest of the Americas continues to this day. And if you were wondering why the descendants of the Maya, the people of Central America, why their homeland is being ravaged by international drug cartels, largely fueled by Western demand for drugs, and who face gang wars and a higher homicide rate than anywhere else on Earth, and who are so then forced to flee for safety as refugees where they are then captured at the United States border, kept in overcrowded cages, as per the wishes of a demented con man from New York City. Some of those refugees, the descendants of the Maya, have since died of some of the diseases that killed the Taino when they were similarly penned, like typhus. Well, if any of those topics come up into conversation, or if, God forbid, you found yourself in a Thanksgiving Day argument with a relative or something like that, I suppose... I mean, for the sake of telling you, you know I want to say that the conquest of the Americas continues. But I also want to tell you that you might win an argument about that. Or some similar argument. The same 
simple phrase that let Bartolome de las Casas win so many arguments he had. He defeated the arguments of Sepulveda in part with one phrase. That is this. Quote, All the peoples of the world are men. Unquote. The contemporary defenders of the Taino, like Bartolome de las Casas, did not truly understand the Taino. Las Casas didn't see them as regular people, like you and me. He saw them as noble savages in some way, I think. Quote, they are by nature the most humble, patient, and peaceable, holding no grudges, free from embroilments, neither excitable nor quarrelsome. These people are the most devoid of rancors, hatreds, or desire for vengeance of any people in the world, unquote. That is ridiculous, but the truth is that the Taino ball game enabled them to create a society which had more healthy outlets for the rancors, hatreds, or desires for vengeance that exist in life. The ball game, where teams would play each other to resolve political disputes, I mean, that's a lot healthier than one in where political disputes are solved by civil war. It'd be nonsense to say that the Taino lived in a society devoid of violence. Wars happened in the Caribbean before 1492, and even in the ball game, people could die, especially if the stakes were high enough. But the Taino lived in a much less violent society than our own, because their society enabled some conflicts to be settled with competition and team sport. So maybe, just maybe, we have a lot more to learn from the Taino than just a new way to cook barbecue or how to build a sustainable garden. Las Casas called them, quote, a poor people, for they not only possess little, but have no desire to possess worldly goods. For this reason, they are not arrogant, embittered, or greedy, unquote. This, too, I think is ridiculous. The Taino were just like any other people on earth. They could be arrogant, embittered, or greedy, just as they could hold grudges or be quarrelsome, but the Taino viewed wealth very differently than we do. Wealth wasn't really something to be collected and hoarded. Wealth was something to be earned in Taino society. The Taino had no use for a collection of gold bars. A Taino instead required badass golden art and jewelry. A Taino earned that badass golden belt buckle he wore or ceremonial golden mask. If the Taino operated a society in the 21st century, then the Taino soldier who won the Medal of Honor would be a wealthy man. Such a man would have earned great treasure. His life would be truly, truly rich. His achievements would result in political and economic power. Winning a championship sports trophy, this would make a team wealthy. Their victories would translate into wealth and power. People who do amazing things would be wealthy. And in our society, this can be true. Super Bowl champions are financially rewarded, but it's not always rewarded. The man on the street, homeless and holding on the sign on the corner, he might even have a few medals for his military service too. I can't promise you that our life, that your life would be better if our society functioned more like the Taino. I think it would, but I don't know the future. Hell, what I can tell you is that when I learned about the Taino, 
I not only realized that there was a lot to learn from them, I also began to realize that, well, wealth might be measured in one's life, in one's achievements. I mean, if, if magic is real, then it is a switch in perspective. It can transform courage into heroism, teamwork into brotherhood, a change in mindset. It could be invoked by Ariato or by prayer. It could transform men into fearsome warriors. If that's true, then maybe magic's real. What else could it do? Maybe magic can turn knowledge into responsibility. While I was doing the research for this episode, I went to bed one night after eating a large dose of edible marijuana gummies, and when I awoke from my psychoactively infused slumber, I knew that the title for this episode, Genocide of the Taino, was wrong. And I must instead call this episode The Song of the Taino. And I awoke feeling a responsibility to teach you about them, not just tell you about what happened to them. The more I learned about the Taino, about the society they built, and about the Arietto, the more my perspective switched, the less colonized I feel. And I know what you might be saying. You might be saying, Jesse, what difference does any of that make? The Taino are a conquered people. Conquest is the story of mankind. And to this point, yes, I agree. Conquest has been very important to the story of mankind. But those of you who know, who have been listening for a while now, you might remember that an author named Tom King taught me the truth about stories. See, the Spanish weren't conquistadors. The conquistadors, they weren't villains because they were Spanish. They were villains because they had a mindset, a colonized mindset. The Spanish had been colonized themselves, first by the Romans, then again by the Arabs and Berbers. And over a thousand years, a conquistador mentality developed in Spain. They abused abuse. This episode has been a telling of the abuse the Spanish dealt out to the Taino. But it is also a story about the Taino. Until they met the Spanish, they were an uncolonized people. I, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. But I want you to know that I have told you the song of the Taino, and I hope you have heard it. I know that it is possible. I want you to know that it is possible, excuse me, for that song to change your perspective. And I know what you're saying. Jesse, what? difference does it make if I change my perspective, if I am decolonized? And to be honest, I don't know. I don't even know what people who lived 500 years ago have to say about me, Jesse. What does it matter? To that I would tell you, you don't have to take it from the Taino. This story is about them, and I hope that you can learn something from them. But if you need a modern example, you can take it from me. My name is Jesse Wiest. I'm a man of the 21st century. This is my story. When I was young, I had the opportunity to play team sports. I wasn't super special or anything, but I was pretty athletic. 
and the experience of being on a great soccer team made me zero dollars. But it was one that has made my life wealthy. I was in several plays. They were a lot of fun. They made my high school an almost insignificant sum of money, I suppose. The experience made me zero dollars. But performing in front of a community and providing joy to other people was one that has made my life wealthy. Ball games and arietos can make you rich. After school, I made decent enough money, better, actually, than I made since going back and finishing uh, school. Uh, I dropped out of high school, though, and I felt like a loser. There were times I wanted to kill myself. When I finally did go to college, um, and I graduated with a degree in history, I, uh, I, mean, well, I, I mean, I can tell you that doing that cost me tens of thousands of dollars in student loans. Since I have graduated, I worked as a park ranger, a substitute teacher, and then I started this podcast. And financially, frankly, I was probably better off doing none of those things, to be honest. But getting that degree and proving to myself that I could finish school has made me wealthy. Serving as a park ranger for the state of Georgia at Wormslow State Historic Site and providing historical information and public service to the public while protecting the natural environment, something I did for five years, made me very, very little money. But it made my life wealthy. Being a substitute teacher made me very little money. Taught me that teaching was fun, but I wanted to do something else. Something without, something, I envisioned a future for myself without a boss. It was also a privilege, though, and an honor to serve the community and teach children. Doing that has made my life wealthy. Starting up this podcast has been a huge risk. I can't even begin to tell you how super excited to have partnered up with Big Heads Media. I think I could start pulling, pulling my hair out. The revenue opportunities the show will get from this aren't going to be huge unless, I, like I said, I get a million more listeners, but it's going to be a huge help. Um, and like I said, though, without a million more listeners, it's not going to get me a lot of dollars either way. But the challenge... And the experience of building this tiny little podcast business is making me wealthy regardless. Of course, I'm telling you this because I'm proud of myself. But I'm also telling you this because while I don't have many answers to life's questions, I do know that if you hear the song of the Taino, then you will realize that you are capable of great things. And whatever challenges you have overcome, However you have served others, whatever you have accomplished, these are the things that have made your life wealthy. These are the things also that are proof that colonization is just a mindset. It's not a reality. Well, I guess it is reality, but it doesn't have to be. The song of the Taino states that you are a person with unique abilities, and you are capable of greatness. You are also a part of a community of others 
then they may need your greatness. As such, you have an important role to play in this world. And by fulfilling that destiny, you will become wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. Thank you, my friends. The next episode will be out, uh, I think, before New Year. And until then, remember, life's a pineapple. Have a slice. Ship.